Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. By exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is brought to you by Backblaze, gimmick-free, truly unlimited cloud backup for your Mac or PC for just $6 a month. Visit this URL, backblaze, or one word, com slash pragmatic for more information. This episode is also sponsored by Solver by Aqualia. Solver is an amazing calculation app that works the way your mind does. When you're working out a maths problem on paper, more powerful than a calculator, simpler and quicker than a spreadsheet, Solver can help you solve your maths problems. Visit solver.app before June 30th, 2019, and you can grab a copy of Solver 3 for Mac for 33% off. We'll talk more about both of them during the show. Pragmatic is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page, and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. I'm your host, John Chigi, and today I'm joined by my good friend, Clay Daly. How are you doing, Clay? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Hey, anytime, anytime. I've been uh, wanting to talk about um, uh, photography for a very long time. I'm not, uh, in in fact, I'm pretty convinced that there's absolutely no way we're going to get through absolutely every aspect of photography in one episode of this show. So let's just uh, just have a go at this and, and see where it takes us. Sounds great. So yeah, um, when I I've been playing with real photography and in quotes real photography um, for a little while uh, in the last few years, particularly uh, when I was younger, I um, I had a thirty five millimeter compact camera that um, you know was really quite terrible, had an infinite zoom lens, and it was just you know. <laughs> it, it's it was just terrible. Like anyway, but it it did the job. It took some photos, I guess. And uh, anyway, I didn't do much more with it until then. I got a smartphone, and it's like, oh, okay. Had a couple of digital cameras along the way. Actually, I tell a lie. I had a one point three megapixel Fuji digital camera there in, in nineteen ninety nine. I think it was. Mm. I don't even remember the model number. But anyway, um, fast forward until recently. I don't call those real cameras. And smartphone cameras got better and better and better. And then finally, I invested in a DSLR a couple of years ago. So about two and a half years ago. And I recently upgraded again to a to a better one, which I'll talk about later. But the point is that I don't really consider that I started to care about photography, as in like caring about things like aperture and ISO and you know and shutter speed and and all the different effects that you can you can do with, in photography until the last two and a half years. So I've been toying with an idea of doing an episode of, of of pragmatic about photography. And when I thought about this, um, well, to be perfectly honest. Um, you're the the person that came to mind in terms of you have been doing photography the majority of your life. So, just want to quickly walk through how you got into photography and uh, yeah. So photography started for me as a way of I I actually started as painting. Photog you know p- painting was really what I was passionate about. Photography was a way of collecting information to come back home to paint, and then one day I realized. Why go through the step of doing the painting afterwards? Why not just continue with photography? Because it mm, was so sure. amazing. <laughs> yeah, sure. So when did you start? Roughly what age? Uh, when I came to this, so it must have been 97. Okay. Yeah, 1997. I, I was always into, I was always interested at looking at photography, but uh, actually doing it myself was 
about 97. It was one of these little point-and-shoot film cameras. Don't even remember. I think it was a Kodak, actually. APS. APS. Uh, remember the APS film? <laughs> uh, yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. It was one of those Kodak a- APS films. Because we both started back in the, in the film era, age, yeah. or, the, or the tail end of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you go and you buy a roll of uh, 24 or 36, um, you know, 200 ISO, you know, just yep. Kodak, whatever. Um, chuck, chuck it in the fridge if you live in a hot climate, which we both do. Yep. Well, I say hot, it's the middle of the winter for me at the moment, but, you know, it's warmer in the summer. But, you know, uh, so your neck of the woods, of course, you're, it's quite warm. So, you know, put that put that stuff in the fridge and you don't want to go on off uh, and loading up into a film camera and, and winding it on and away you go. Mm-hmm. But um, being careful not to open that <laughs> with, unless you've wound the film all the way back first. Otherwise, that's a complete waste. But, yeah, and obviously things have advanced since then. So, I guess um, before we get into too much more, though, I, I guess the ultimate question that i want to answer as a part of this um this discussion today is is it worth like for, for the listener is it worth buying a real in air quotes real camera uh, or is a basic smartphone camera going to be enough for you and that's what i want to try and explore and all the different aspects and how you make that decision and, and i guess it's not just that it's also knowing knowing what you're getting yourself into because I'll tell you, with my with my recent little journey in photography, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I knew I wanted to get better, to take better photos, but I had I, nothing had prepared me for just how complicated it can get. <laughs> so yeah, well, you had yeah. some specific uh, some specific uh, things you wanted to capture and and limitations. I mean, you know, you you went down the right path, right? You know, there were some limitations that you were trying to overcome. And every time you sort of took the next step and I saw that journey happening and, you know, so it's always, it's always, you know, the question to to add to that is also, are you, with whatever you're doing now is, are you reaching your results? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And the thing that's different these days, and I say these days, the last, I would say 10 to 15 years, I'd say beyond 15 years is probably a bit of a stretch, but definitely the last 10, it has been the case that the vast majority of people uh, in the world, in well, in 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 um, most 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 countries around the world, you'll have either a smartphone or you'll have like a music player of some kind, like an iPod or some music player equivalent. Um, so smartphones of any brand, and even things that you wouldn't expect have got cameras built into them. Yeah. So it's it's like pretty much every device every mobile device you can think of has got a camera built into it in some fashion so the the debate of being well it used to be when we started that if you wanted a camera you would buy a camera and now we're in a stage where that's no longer the case if you want a phone you're going to get a camera whether you ask for it or not mm-hmm. so you want to take a photo it's going to be there in your pocket most likely um yeah like i said even ipod touches have got them so um so it's like, well, okay, so if is that not enough? And for the majority of people, that is probably enough. But there are still compelling reasons to get into, get a, a real camera. When I say a real camera, I've got to stop saying that. <laughs> it's like a dedicated device whose sole function and primary purpose is photography. Okay, so a few things we want to take out of scope because otherwise we will be here forever <laughs> and then some longer probably. So first of all, I, I'm... And uh, with all with all respect to yourself, um, mm-hmm. artistic expression um, is. I think we should take that out of scope, because okay. uh, I know that you know that's a big part of it for you. 
Um, mm. For me, though, I, I my problem with art is that art is subjective. Very. And I, yeah, and I tell you, the more I learn about photography, the more I realize the subtlety and some of the art. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the point where I'm beginning to appreciate some of the complexities of certain photos, whereas previously, like two or three years ago, before I got into this mess, I would have just looked at the photo and said, yep, that's a photo. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? It's like you, the more you learn, the more you learn to appreciate it. So I think that art is also something you have to learn a bit more about before you can truly appreciate it. And and that makes it a difficult thing to talk about. So I'd rather take that off the table. Let's just keep this a bit more a bit more scientific for, the, for, for this episode anyway. Yep. All right, cool. So um, I also don't want to get into things like how lenses are put together. Uh, I thought about it and I'm like, let's talk about the refractive index of this aspheric. No, 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 no. Let's save that for another day, month, year, whenever. Mm-hmm. Not not now. Yep. Um, I also want to like not – I'm not too focused on how cameras are physically built like necessarily. Like I don't – necessarily want to go down to the layer of exactly what 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 technology is used to build the sensor build different components and so on and so forth sometimes i've done all that stuff on the show before and i, I just i think let's just take that out of the equation because frankly there's so much to talk about mm-hmm. i gotta draw a line somewhere yep it's a good line okay cool yeah awesome thank you all right so with all that said um a real re- and, and this is i thought about what about history of photography well you know what if you really want to really want to go back to the beginning there's actually a hell of a lot of history before we even get to the digital stage. So what I'd like to talk about is the the history of photography, but in a modern sense, that is to say the digital part of mm-hmm. photography yeah. and specifically talking about handheld cameras. Okay. So yeah, just, just from the consumer aspect. So the average person or, or even a professional or semi-professional photographer, like here's a camera, you pick it up, it's digital, let's go. And I was surprised when I started digging into this. I didn't realize it was actually 1957 that a team at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, developed a, a digital process for imaging. They called it the wire photo drum scanner. And this thing was like a one-bit depth. Yep. So, you know, very blocky. it's either very blocky. <laughs> just, just a teeny touch. Mm-hmm. It's either on or it's off. And it was a, a resolution of 176 by 176 pixels. Yep. So not exactly high res. But, hey, that was 57, still impressive. Um, it wasn't really until 1969 when CCDs, which are the charge-coupled devices, um, they just used op- optical-stimulated uh, electronics, uh, so like light-dependent de- light resistors and um, and uh, photo photodiodes and such. So- no, photodiodes, sorry. Uh, optical transceivers, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. The whole idea is that that allowed genuine digital imaging, but they were very, very tiny. It wasn't actually until 73 I think it was a Fairchild uh, semiconductor had a hundred by one hundred pixel sensor, but that's just the sensor tech. This still hasn't made it into an actual camera yet. Right. So then it was like nine eighty six. Um, so getting closer, and of course it was our good old favorite Kodak. So Kodak were the first that actually released a genuine megapixel color CCD. Yeah. That could be used in a camera. So go Kodak. Kodak was at the at the beginning of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, these photography journeys that we we you mm. know we have found ourselves upon and it's unfortunate that they're not here anymore yeah it's so sad isn't it because yeah, yeah they were such a pioneer and they had such a head start on so many people they did they, they invented so much really good tech and yeah it's it is such a shame because mm. i mean kodak have been gone how long have they been gone now it's been a while it's been a while yeah i mean they're, they're around in name only and uh you know all these companies are using their name uh they're paying the rights to use the name but it's not the kodak i mean 
the code I did it, yeah. all, all the research. I mean, that's phenomenal. Okay, so anyway, it was really the 1990s. So the, so the 1990s is when digital cameras started to become generally available for people to buy. They were still pretty low resolution. Any of the ones that were decent, um, you know, with a realm of like decent money that most people, you know, wouldn't spend. And frankly, even most professionals wouldn't use them because film at that point was still far better. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, oh, for sure. Massive because that was still, the technology was still evolving. Yep. And um, I had a look at the first full frame. We'll talk a little bit more about frame sizes and everything like that in a minute. But the first full frame that was designed, camera that was designed from scratch to be a fully digital uh, camera was actually a Nikon DSLR, uh, the D1. Yeah, well, the D1, the D1 was still uh, it was still APS-C though, wasn't it? Uh, no, I don't think so. The D1's the full frame. It was, uh, yeah, APS. Oh, but hang on, APS-C is. Yeah. Because I think Canon, I think Canon came with uh, with their, I believe Canon was the first with an actual full frame matching thirty five millimeter. Ah, uh, okay. It may have been that the D one was slightly slightly smaller. Yeah. It wasn't considered a DX though. Right. It, the D one's not a DX. They considered an FX, but it may right. not have been the full thirty five millimeter. Right. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's where I've misunderstood. Yeah. This is the problem: is that you'd be surprised um, tracking down the exact order of who released what and when. Yeah, trust me, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. terrible, isn't it? So, yeah. so okay. So between Nikon and for the D1 and Canon, what was the model of the Canon? Uh, I think Canon was uh, the one DX. I forgot the name. A yeah. D. So Nikon had D1. Uh, Canon had one D, I believe. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not as much into the. Um, I, I'm not as much as familiar with the Canon. Um, uh, timeline as I am with the Nikons, and that's just because I'm more of a Nikon guy, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. Just a little bit more about the D1, though. Just quickly, it only had I say only. This is 1999. It had 2.74 megapixel uh, sensor. That was which, blow, blow your mind. <laughs> that it was back then. Yes, uh, this it was. is yeah. We hadn't even crossed 2000 at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is that from from that point, it proved, and you know, then the Canon obviously around the same time. Uh, was the digital cameras could be as good quality uh, in terms of the the photos they produced as some some film cameras, mm-hmm. and as soon as that sort of f- switch flipped in people's minds, and that's all the time when the internet was starting to gather momentum, and sharing of photos is much more much more straightforward. Um, that that it didn't take long. In fact, uh, only four years after that, so about two thousand three, um, globally, digital cameras started to outsell film cameras the problem with that statistic though is that when i say digital cameras it means anything that had a camera in it <laughs> yeah so i think that that's a little bit tenuous i think that if you were to look at cameras that whose sole function was photography it was probably a few years later before digital started to outsell film equivalents but it depends on how you want to slice the statistics by the way just a right. real-time follow-up uh so yeah. the 1ds was the one that was the first, 1DS. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Canon. Yeah. What year was what was what uh, year? Two thousand two. Two thousand two. Yeah, that was the first genuine full frame thirty five millimeter equivalent. Right. Yeah. 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 That was yeah exactly right. All right. Fair enough. Uh, so the other thing that happened around the two thousands though was that uh, the CMOS sensors were essentially becoming far more usable to the point at which they allowed you to make uh, create very cheap cameras and you could embed those in portable devices very cost effectively. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they ended up in, like we were just talking about at the beginning of the show, 
in every smartphone and every portable device you can possibly imagine because these things were cheap. They were very easy to very easy to to make, uh, and they're compact. But obviously, there's a you know there's trade off there. But well, anyhow, but point is that that was when it truly flipped, and people said, well, why do I need to buy a separate camera anymore? Because I got this dodgy CMOS camera. It's embedded in my smartphone. Okay, people probably didn't say that because they didn't know it was a CMOS sensor. But you know, it doesn't matter. Right. Never mind. <laughs> So that was as far as I wanted to go with the history of digital photography because the fact is that the evolution that we've seen from then until now is uh, is staggering. Yeah. Uh, you can get like the D5, the Nikon D5, which is the current top-of-the-line full-frame uh, Nikon, and it's got something like a 46-megapixel sensor in it. Um, that's happened in 20 years. So in 20 years, we've gone from 2.7-megapixel to, to 46-megapixels or something. It's insane. It is, yeah. And the low-light performance of these sensors these days is incredible um, to the point at which they outperform film yeah. and it's it's just amazing. So um, the other thing that I want to talk about before we sort of go too much further is just a quick sort of touch on what gear we currently have. And my, my problem with asking you this question, <laughs> I've seen the photos of your photo cabinet whatever you call that display case yes and i didn't i haven't counted them all but there's a lot in yes, that cabinet very much so so, so maybe what we should say is because i know you're a film guy mm-hmm. and you also have some digital mm-hmm. so if you would <laughs> your current preferred digital and potentially your current preferred film camera okay so the so my main body is the sony original a7 and my camera that is always with me in my bag when I go to work is my um, is my uh, Fuji X100S, which is the second generation. Nice. And for films, nice. uh, I have a, the main camera that I, I usually just pick up and go, it, which has a 35mm uh, a lens on it, is the Canon, Canon P. You remember the Canon P, the rangefinder? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Canon P. Nice. Okay, fair enough. Uh, one of the other things that I also love about your collection is, and you just listed off three just there. Mm-hmm. So you got Sony, you got Fuji. <laughs> I mean, you, you're not you're not married to a brand. No. is kind of what I'm getting at. No, never have been. <laughs> no, no, and that's got pros and cons, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that that I did not fully appreciate. I'll be honest when I when I when I got involved in more serious photography. Um, because there's a lot of lock-in yeah. that happens. So we'll, we'll get to that. So for me, uh, my first decent real camera was a Nikon D5500. It's considered to be a uh, a pretty entry-level sort of a, a, a camera. I got it. I picked that up uh, a second. It was used, mm-hmm. but it had about, I think the shutter count was like 17,000 and so on mm-hmm. on it, uh, which is considered to be quite low. The shutter mechanisms on these are... A hundred to two hundred thousand, yeah, uh, for the for the mechanism. So pretty good, really. Mm-hmm. And um, I got it through a, a rental agreement, so like a rent to own thing. So after I'd paid that off, then I I owned it, and I used that for a couple of years. And then I felt like I needed better performance in low light and sport, which we'll get to. Uh, so I recently upgraded that to a Nikon D five hundred. Um, which is still a DX, uh, but the fact is that um, the low light performance on that was significantly better, mm-hmm. uh, and the the speed that it, the autofocus speed on it is pr- twice as fast, easily 
um, and it's it doesn't it doesn't hunt back and forth. It's 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 extremely precise. And the thing that I also um, love about it is that it's got a massive memory buffer on it, and you can literally just go like a machine gun and take ten frames per second, no problem. And even to an SD card, it does support XD cards as well for higher data rates. But the reality is that. Yeah, it's a beautiful camera. I've had it for all of about four, well, three weeks, I think. Not even, maybe not even that long. Two and a half weeks. Very, very, very fresh. So obviously, I'm still learning all the buttons, but um, it's a beautiful camera. And the, you know the, the the benefit the benefit of you moving from the D5500 to this D500 is that all mm. of the old autofocus lenses are open to you now, like because it has a built-in yes. motor, so you're like set yes, to go. It does. I love the. I love that you know that. Um, <laughs> you're damn, yeah you're damn right it does so we're going to talk about some considerations later on yeah so all right so that's the kit that we use um and let's keep on going then so the whole the whole film transition to digital i think we sort of just briefly covered that it just it, it came to the point at which um you know digital was outperforming film and at which point then the question is people ask themselves, well, why would I want to buy a film camera anymore? Because I don't have to process the film. I can just click a button, put it on my computer and away I go. Or if, of course, it's in a smartphone. So that's where everyone starts these days is I've got a camera in my, in my smartphone. So I take the photo. Um, it's on my phone. I can put it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, maybe not Twitter. I don't know. It depends on your proclivities. But irrespective, it's really easy to share it, which is great. Right. There's no scanning. There's no... There's no intermediate steps. Flip side um, of digital, just quickly though, because I, I didn't have this in the notes, but just the flip side is unless you print it or pay to have it printed, you don't have a, a physical copy of it. Yep. And and negatives for film, for example, if you look at the, the longevity of negatives for film, if you store them correctly, they will outlast any floppy disk, any – well, I dated myself there um, – <laughs> Yeah, I, I did an episode of, of the show back, I think it was episode 12, um, where we looked at um, solid-state drives and and uh, I've also done ones on uh, long-term storage for like optical discs and everything. And I guarantee you that film will still be usable in 30 years and uh, any hard drives or solid-state drives you got will not be. Yeah, sad but true. Sad but true. So anyhow, never mind that. Uh, so yeah, so tangent there uh smartphones so so yeah smartphones um are definitely the most common camera the next 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 class of camera i guess you could say is a is a point a point and shoot or maybe a compact camera how would you how would you define them uh, a point and shoot so they're next next step up at you know bigger sensors and um you can throw them in your pocket it's easy just to have both your smartphone and your your point and shoot so, so even well, that's someone, how you know you're a photographer because you got a point and shoot in your pocket and a smartphone. <laughs> exactly, you know, even our, our co-host Vic Hudson. I mean, even if you were mm. to just go from uh, having just a smartphone to having also a point and shoot, he he would also just in, uh, uh, get better pictures. I know, I know, he doesn't sure. want to hear that, but uh, you know, <laughs> that's all right. No, but the thing that makes a point and shoot or a compact camera what it is, I guess, I was thinking about it. First of all, it's a fully integrated camera. Yeah. So yeah. there's nothing detachable. It's no, there's nothing interchangeable, oh, for the most part. Um, in terms of resolution, uh, I'd say the sensors maybe, but somewhere between five and fifteen megapixels. It does vary because you can get some with pretty high resolution these days. Yeah, you can. But uh, in any case, uh, some of them will have a very limited optical zoom, uh, but most of them will be, you know, when I was. 
you can correct me if I'm wrong here, and I keep calling it infinite zoom, but that's how what I learned it as being. <laughs> um, an infinite zoom simply meaning that everything is always in focus, but you know, as soon as you go any decent distance from the camera, it's everything's a spec. Yeah. You know, like, so I, I would say if with point and shoots, you know, you have a class in, in this era where we are now, there are a class of point and shoots that are better than your old point and shoots. I mean, again, any camera can become a point and shoot if you just set it in P mode, right? It's a point mm. and shoot because you basically pick up point and shoot. Same, same thing with most of our, our smartphones. They're pretty much point and shoots because most people aren't thinking about what they're going to do. They're not picking up an app like Visco and and going in there and and doing sort of manual adjustments right there the camera mm-hmm. is giving you uh, an average exposure you know what people in cupertino think is an average exposure or what people in you know wherever google is uh, think is an app uh, proper exposure but you, you could you could go from the the, the average point and shoot that we're thinking of to a point and shoot like the x100 that i described which is a point and shoot in a in a, in a way but it has a lot of mm-hmm. manual uh, uh, dials on the outside. Um, but if you were to look at it, because it is an uh, integrated system, it is a point and shoot. And the one benefit here is that it has a sensor the size of what your D500 has in it. It also has just a fixed aperture, um, you know, like a, a wide, sort of wide open aperture, an F2, with a fixed lens of 35 millimeter equivalent, right? So no, that's fa- that's a fair point. Yeah. I guess the problem is the lines have blurred a bit, and I was trying to sort of define this, and and there's that many opinions on on <laughs> there's opinions on the internet. Who would have thought? <laughs> but um, the thing is that there's just it's difficult to, to to nail it down because the lines have become so blurred, particularly mm. in the last five years. Okay, so the next, I think, broad categories that, that I'd, I'd like to sort of, you know, just call out is uh, the micro four-thirds yeah. um, form factor. So, I guess from this, the, it comes a lot from my, my take on that is there's a couple of things. First of all, the sensor is smaller than a cropped sensor or a DX in, in Nikon uh, terminology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the important thing for me is that there's no optical viewfinder. Um, so, hence, no mirror, um, no... SLR component. It's just essentially, yeah, it, it's a it's a stripped down DSLR with a with a much smaller sensor than a DX. Right. Is that reasonable characterization yes, for a micro yes. four thirds? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, next one is mirrorless, and mirrorless I think is the one one of the ones that's also blurry because the mirrorless is again a stripped down you know DSLR, but it can be a crop sensor or it could be a full frame, mm-hmm. full size sensor. That's something that when I was digging into this, I'm like, I thought all mirrorlesses were all DXs, but they're not. So how, do, you ha- do you have a mirrorless? I think you've got a mirrorless, don't you? Or you got a couple? Yeah, the, so the Sony, uh, yeah, I have a bunch of them. So the, the only mm. non-mirrorless, D, uh, actually I have two non-DS, uh, non-mirrorless. I have a Sony, uh, no, Nikon D5100. That's not, it's not mirrorless. And then I also have uh, the before micro four thirds, there was four thirds. I have a four thirds. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, non um, non mirrorless. Wow! All right, impressive. <laughs> okay, so when I was when I was younger, um, I I'd heard of an SLR single reflex uh, lens or single lens reflex, I suppose. But mm-hmm. I always thought of it as sing, a single reflex lens, um, which it would be SRL. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> never mind. Uh, and of course, DSLR being a digital uh, single reflex lens or single lens reflex. Mm-hmm. So the, the the great thing about an SLR, thing that I love about it, 
is the mirror inside the the positioning allows a genuine optical representation through the viewfinder that exactly represents what the camera would take as an image when you when you click the shutter. Mm-hmm. Flip side of that is well, the prism and the mirror it adds bulk. Yes, and so that's going to make it heavier and bigger and just more annoying in that respect. Um, and the thing I was thinking about is, does that actually make the same sense that it used to? Because I was thinking about it. If you were loading, you know, because back in the beginning when film was very expensive and not just expensive, you wanted to make sure when you clicked that shutter that it was going to be a good photo. So if you actually were able to see exactly what the film would see through the viewfinder before you clicked that button, that made sense mm-hmm. because you, you don't, you're not going to go and burn like 36 images on this roll like with rapid fire. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. But these days, does it still make sense with digital? I don't know. What do you think? You have almost endless uh, images, right? In a way. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So the, the one thing, um, you know, the one thing with the cameras we have now is that uh, you, you, I mean, you could, you could sort of go into a true burst mode. And of course, your D500 actually has a proper burst mode for things like sport. Um, mm-hmm. So, so there's no need for you to worry. And, you know, because your, your camera, takes um uh sd and it takes um it takes the other format xd okay yeah mm-hmm. are you using both by the way or just one no i haven't <laughs> i spent all my money on the camera i haven't got money for the memory yeah. card <laughs> those memory cards are 200 dollars a pop i know it's crazy i know oh it, it's insane yeah it is so I, I guess what i was trying to i was trying to think through like do, does does having an slr matter as much as it used to when you had film because the number of people, like photographers I've, I've, I've spoken to, have said, you ditch the SLR, just go with a mirrorless. I, I, think, I think the like right now there is a, there's a sort of transition happening. Um, the, like your, the D500 is actually sort of almost at the bridge of what's happening right now. So if you're used to using a DSLR... Um, I think this is probably sort of towards the end of when DSLRs are going to be chosen as sports cameras, and if they actually are still sort of at the at at the tip of being the best sports cameras. Mm. But you know, uh, Nikon, Sony uh, are actually and Canon actually are actually coming out with mirrorless cameras that are sort of ma- matching. And and trying to exceed like the Sony with their A nine, um, in a way they've kind of sort of surpassed what what you can do. But the problem is again the cost, you know, mm. the cost of the camera is it's not cheap. It's almost like I think when it came out it was like five thousand dollars, I believe it was. Mm. You know, and, and yes. you could buy a D five hundred probably for seventeen hundred or so. Next uh, next subtopic is the brands and. The problem is market share for cameras, it's difficult to nail down. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem is that there actually are quite a lot of brands. And I just want to just reel off the ones that I can think of. And it's not an exhaustive list. Feel free to add to it. But uh, first of all, the biggest ones that I see around, the ones I see around the most often by far are Canon. Mm-hmm. Um, the next most frequently ones that I've seen around are Nikon. And then after that, it becomes a bit of a wash. I see some Fujifilm. I see Olympus. I see Minolta. 
Um, I never ever see a Leica, but I know what they are because <laughs> they're kind of like apparently they're the gold-plated, the best camera in the world ever or something, depending upon who you speak to. <laughs> uh, but never mind. And, of course, you've got Sony in there as well. I do see some Sonys from time to time, and that's one of your favorites. Yep. Um, any other major brands you think just to mention? Uh, those those are pretty much the majors. Uh, you know, at one point, Fuji actually was sort of at the bottom, and then mm. – they decided to to sort of tackle same thing with with Olympus and Panasonic. There was a moment mm. where um, where sort of they they sort of hit the bottom. You know, Olympus was always one of these companies in the film days that that you, you thought of. You thought of Canon, Nikon, Manila, and Olympus, and then digital comes along and they chose to go to the the small sensor, which is the four thirds and micro four thirds, um, and and so. I think their their issue is that that their sensor is really small. It's it's much smaller than full frame, and also much smaller than APS-C, which is what your D five hundred has. Um, and, and so so Mano, um, Panasonic, which is actually trying to come back again by going full frame. I don't know if you've seen their cameras that are no full frame as well, which is mm-hmm. you know uh, which is a uh, which is actually. Interesting for me because full frame cameras are actually getting better, getting faster. So what's gonna? Because mm. the reason why you went with something like micro filters is that the the readout of that sensor was fast, right? You could, I, I think, at some point it was the Olympus had one of these cam. I forget the name of it, but one of these cameras that had an extremely fast sensor, which you could use for sports or use for birds or whatever because you know birds and flight sports there are things that are very hard to capture if you if you don't have a fast enough shutter speed um and so um the major brands in a couple of years are are probably going to be different the only companies that i I could see right now staying at the top are going to be canon nikon and nikon has a bit of an issue because financially maybe they're not Doing too well, but Canon, of course, makes their own sensors. Um, Sony is probably going to be at the top because right now Sony is probably the company to beat of all of them. Yeah, the only person who's who's missing was Panasonic from the list that I think. Yeah, okay, no, that's fair enough. And and upon reflection, I actually do have a a Panasonic Lumix. Oh, um, yeah, uh, compact uh, compact camera Mm -hmm. which we got a decade ago. Uh, because it was the only one at the time that was um, shockproof and waterproof, and you know we had kids and wanted to take it to the water park, and mm-hmm. you know it was good for that until um, water got into it. So <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> never mind. Yes, never mind. Uh, yes. So I guess the the other thing is that I've noticed that there's sort of semi-professional, professional, and then there's um, kind of like lustworthy, mm-hmm. like the Leica, and the price differentiator between them. Uh, and it's it's all these camera companies have got different cameras with different trade-offs and they charge different premiums across their range. And I found with Canon and Nikon in particular, they have a very good spread um, from, I say, affordable, more affordable, mm-hmm. I suppose, uh, all the way through to semi-professional to, you know, like top shelf professional, like in, in Australian dollars, uh, for example, the D5, which is the top of the line Nikon, that's a ten thousand dollar camera in Australian dollars. I think it's about seven thousand US or something like that. It's, mm. you know, it's a full frame. It's a beast. Uh, this thing and it's built like a tank. I actually held one for the hell of it, 
And I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> but um, I have no use for that. Um, but in any case, this episode is brought to you by Backblaze, a cloud backup solution for your Mac or PC. You might have heard about Backblaze before, and if you haven't tried Backblaze yet, I strongly suggest you consider it. And let me tell you why. Backblaze is an off-premises backup solution with no gimmicks, and it's truly unlimited. That's right. If you have 8 terabytes of storage either in or attached to your computer, or much more than that, it's only $6 per month for that machine. Backblaze backs up everything. Documents, photos, drawings, music, videos, project files of any size, the lot. And you can set up to back up automatically, once a day, between set hours. You're in complete control. Backblaze just backs it up and stays out of the way until you need it. Once it is backed up, you can get access to your data from anywhere, via the mobile app or via a web browser, and you can restore anything from just one file to all of your files. It's entirely up to you. If you've got a huge amount to restore and you don't want to download it all, that's fine. Backblaze have got you covered. They call it Restore by Mail. You can pick a thumb drive or a hard drive and they'll just send it to you with all your files on it. Sent by FedEx in the US, it's sent overnight. When you've got your files back safely, you can just keep that drive if you want. But if you don't like the color, that's okay. Just send it back within 30 days and Backblaze will give you a full refund for that restore. How good is that? Backblaze are backing up over 750 petabytes of user data. With over 40 billion files restored so far, that's a heck of a lot of memories and documents that otherwise could have been lost forever. So why do I love Backblaze so much? Well, it's because they saved a huge amount of my data years ago. When one of my hard drives failed, long before Backblaze were a sponsor, I signed up on a recommendation from a friend after one of my three external 4TB drives died. A few weeks later, my time capsule drive also died. And if it hadn't been for Backblaze, when one of the remaining drives also failed, seriously, it actually did, I would have lost it all. But Backblaze had it, so I got it back. My only regret was that I hadn't signed up months earlier, because if I had, I wouldn't have lost anything at all. If you visit this URL, backblaze, all one word, dot com slash pragmatic, you can sign up for a 15-day, no-risk, free trial. It's easy to set it up, and using that URL means that they'll know that you're supporting the engineered network at the same time. They also have great discounts for annual plans too, so don't take a chance with your data. Start protecting yourself from a worst-case scenario like I did. And don't wait. Start today. Thank you to Backblaze for once again sponsoring the Engineered Network. Uh, so, all right. Uh, the other thing that's important to understand with the different brands, and I sort of touched on this briefly, is the incompatibilities. So, uh, a lot of them, you'll say, well, okay, memory cards. So, memory card standards like SD and, um, of course, SDHC and then, of course, the XD card standards everything's moved pretty much moved away from compact flash at this point. Mm -hmm. So that certainly is compatible between them, you know, format the card, of course, but the same card will work in all the cameras, but what won't work are the damn lenses. Yeah. And this is the thing that's really frustrating because you, you, if you bought into one ecosystem, you buy a Nikon, you need to need to use a Nikon lens and Nikons have had pretty consistent mounts over the last few decades. So the F mount, I think is, has been around for quite a while. Yes. And, yeah, and it means that I can get a camera, a lens made 20 years ago and it'll fit and work on the camera body I'm using today, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Mind you, if I say, oh, I really, really want a, you know, a Canon whatever or a, or a Minolta whatever or a you know, Leica, then all of my lenses for my Nikon, none of them will fit. 
Yeah. That's really, really annoying. And um, so, you got to end up um, changing out both. So, I find that to be really frustrating. There are some lens manufacturers though. Sorry. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting about going to the mirrorless route? Because before mirrorless, you had to have... Um, the, the issue was more of an issue when we were in the mirrored era. The mirrorless era coming, we have... You, you are... So, the plane from the mount to the center is smaller. So, therefore, you could actually put an adapter... And it actually puts the, the, the back of the lens at the proper distance. So like Sony cameras, um, you can buy a bunch of adapters. And if you're coming from Canon, you can use your Canon mm-hmm. lenses. And if you're coming from Nikon, you can use the Nikon lenses. Because the, the flange distance is actually sh- shallow enough that adding an mm-hmm. adapter allows those lenses to actually be focused to infinity and be usable. So going to mirrorless actually gave you many benefits. And a lot of these companies like Sony... Um, especially Sony, I should say, didn't want to discourage people who were moving from, say, Canon or Nikon, Nikon, over. Because it's like, well, if you bought thousands of dollars of lenses, are you going to abandon? Probably not. But changing mm-hmm. bodies are easy. So if you if you could reuse your old lenses, you'd gladly say, fine, I was going to change my body anyways. Might as well go from my Canon 1D to the Sony A9 instead, since I can use my, my lens, you know, and they have autofocus lenses as well. They're not as good, of course, as a native lens. But again, if you spend thousands of dollars on some really awesome lens, you're going to want to, you know, keep it for a little bit. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. And one of the things that I was, I was, um, I wanted to touch on is that yes, the lenses are incompatible. Yes, you can get adapters. And, but, uh, and this is, I guess for me is the big, but is that, the optics will work. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of the automated functionality, like you might have problems with your metering, you might have problems with your focus, like your autofocus, you might have to manually focus it. The glass will be fine, but some of the other advanced functionality that you would get in with the matching, you know, Canon lens of the Canon body, uh, you may miss out on. Um, and, and you know, if you've got a $2,000 lens, um, you know, maybe that's fine. It's not a big deal. Um, because if let's say it's like a super zoom tell you know lens, mm-hmm. that's okay. You want you 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 put up with that, uh, because generally when you're using those sorts of zoom lenses, you'll set the you'll set the the focus on it and you'll pick pick your focal point and then you'll let it sit there. Yeah. So autofocus is not as big of a deal. Yeah, well, they, but, they have some autofocus like Metabones. I don't know if you know the company Metabones. Uh, heard of them? Yeah. So Metabones, you know, you can if you have a mirrorless camera, you can still. And even Sigma actually has an adapter for, I think, uh, Canon to Sony. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could turn those lenses into autofocus. I will keep the autofocus features. But again, a native lens is, of, of course, going to be better. But, you know, like companies like Sony, because they were a sort of, I mean, Sony Sony came into this world doing, a point, and, doing point and shoots. And then they mm-hmm. bought Minolta. And, mm-hmm. and so they wanted to... Um, they wanted to make sure that they were going to do well in this arena. And so they didn't stop people from, you know, it's not like Canon who who doesn't give you enough information to be able to say, okay, any of those lenses can work. One of the other things about the different lenses is that there are manufacturers that will build a lens and they'll, they'll have the same optics, but they'll have the same lens effectively with two different mounts. Mm-hmm. So they'll have one with an F mount that works in a Nikon and one for, for a Canon, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, so uh, for example, I have one lens like that made by Tamron, 
uh, which is Japanese uh, lens manufacturer. They, they, their particular lens that I've got is a 2470 mm uh, f2.8 constant aperture. And um, it's a beautiful bit of glass. It is very, very nice. It is heavy as a brick. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, yeah, anyhow. But the point is that it's a beautiful lens and it works on on the Nikon. But the word of caution is, and Sigma is another one that does it. There's pure, probably a few other brands you could probably mention that do, um, yeah, that, that will make the same lens but have different adapters for different cameras. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the problem with those is that, and this is the same problem with mixing and matching lenses and bodies, is that sometimes there will be um, autocorrection built in to the, to the camera firmware. So one, the Nikon, for example, you download a, uh, a lens file and a lens file and you install the lens file like you're installing firmware and uh, it'll have all the correction factors for that lens. So if you've got a lens that you know, is a very wide angle and you're going to get a lot of you know, aberration in that lens, then it'll automatically correct for that when you take the photo. So things that would otherwise, you know, because of perspective, would have had a, uh, had a curve in them. Like uh, if you're taking a, uh, a shot of a bunch of bookshelves in a study and ordinarily the, the, the native photo would have all of those, um, the aberration from the, the wide angle on it. Uh, it'll automatically correct for that and the lines will be dead straight mm-hmm. in the photo. And that's the sort of thing you also would, won't get if you put the wrong, a different lens on a different body. It won't automatically correct for that. You can still correct for it, of course, mm-hmm. um, post-production in like, yep. yeah, like uh, what what software do you use for that? Oh, Capture One Pro, you mean for from Capture One Pro. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. I was sorry. Yeah, that one. Yeah, so you you can still do it in post production, but the but you know the having it all in the same brand means you get all that extra you know for you. Yeah. So anyway, just something to be aware of, and it's certainly something that I never fully appreciated until I got buried in it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, right, well, that's why I'm still with Nikon because all my gear fits for Nikon, and I don't really want to go through all the hassle of changing. Even even with the adapters, I'm still not entirely sold, but. It may be something I can explore in the future, but for the moment, I'm I'm happy with my most recent purchase. That's fine. Let me ask you a question: What what made you choose Nikon over Canon when you did? Was it uh, was it something that you used in the past before you came to digital? Or no, it's the silly the silliest answer, and but the, but it is on it is the truth, mm-hmm. and that is that I went to a website where they were renting uh, a whole bunch of you know used cameras Mm -hmm. and you could it had a rent to own program so you could rent it for six months and if you liked it you could buy it outright for a discounted rate because you'd already paid off some of it in rental Mm -hmm. uh and if you didn't like it you could return it and i had a look at their their stockpile of stuff and they had hardly any canon and they had a heck of a lot of nikons Mm. so i had more options and i picked a d5500 and and so i set my course okay because you got to realize i did do research but I didn't do as much research because I didn't think I'd have to do quite so much research. And it's only once I got it and I was using it for a few months and I'm like, oh, okay, I'd like to get this lens. Oh, that's not compatible. Okay, I'd like to get this one. No, that's not compatible. That body doesn't have a motor in it. I can't mix and match lens brands. And I'm like, oh, okay. And what's the low light performance like? And it wasn't until I started pushing up against the limitations of what I got. And that's what I was hoping to help people with with this episode is to say, look, mm-hmm. here are the considerations. Don't just go and buy a specific brand necessarily. Do your research and figure out what do you really need. Because yep. if, if I had it over to do again, I probably would have gone for a Canon first mm-hmm. um, simply because they – Canons, having know what I know now, um, Canons have more cameras with lower, better low light performance on balance for the money – uh, than Nikon do. Mm-hmm. Although Nikon do have one of the best low-light performance cameras you can buy. Yep. 
Um, there is no doubt about that. But I find, found that there are more cannons out there and they've got more options. So I, I wish there was a better reason other than I had more choices of, of, of Nikons at the time. But that's all that was. That's cool. No, because the thing is that, um, you know, I, I started in digital. I started with Sony point and shoots. Mm. Then I went to yep. Canon DSLRs. And um, I ended up actually leaving Canon to go to Nikon's DSLRs. Um, the, 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 the cannons, the, the, it's funny, ergonomics wise, the cannon felt better, but mm-hmm. picture wise, the Nikon, Nikon was slightly better. Yeah. It was odd. Right. But, uh, yeah, but mm. again, if, if the answer to, 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 for people, if you're wanting to get into something is do your research and once you do get it, just use, use it like. And sort of almost abuse it, <laughs> bring it to like sure. to br- break it, bring it to the point where where it is actually almost in a way you've broken it, not broken it physically, but you know, like you, you're not getting mm-hmm. the shots that you want to get, and then decide to move on from there. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure, you know exactly what you'll want. Yeah, and I think the problem with this is that I didn't fully appreciate um, everything that I would need, and some of my needs changed. Mm-hmm. So, we'll, but we'll get to that in yeah. a minute. Yeah. Um, so just to wrap up on the differences between brands, for example, the other thing that I found is annoying is there's terminology differences between the brands as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like Canon, they'll talk about EFS, EFM, Nikon, they'll talk about DX. Um, it's just, just it's, <laughs> there's no value in different names. Anyway, that doesn't matter. That's just, that's just their branding, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Never mind. Uh, and I think that having played with a Canon, having played with a Nikon, and having briefly played with a uh, with an Olympus, the differences between the brands, I think it's analogous to shifting between Windows and Mac OS, for example, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. It's like all of the basic functionality still exists, but the way it's laid out can be completely different and takes a little bit of getting used to. Yeah, I do. Yep, definitely. And the problem is, of course, people are going to have preferences and they're going to say, well, I really like the layout of the configurability or whatever of the Canon. Um, you know, or, or I prefer just the the way that the way in which the Nikons are set up just speaks to me mm-hmm. for some reason. You know, for me personally, um, I, I've used the Nikon the most. So I got used to the, the Nikon terminology. But I tell you something I didn't foresee, and this is one of the things that really annoys me, to be honest, <laughs> is that. I got a, a Nikon D5500 and I thought, okay, that's going to really set me up. If I, if I get another Nikon, then at least I'll understand the interface. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, because the D500 is a completely different interface yeah. to the 5500. It is It bears very little in common. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, so Nikon couldn't even keep their own user interface on their own product lines the same or similar. It was just, just. Oh, Can I just say something? All the camera companies are like this. It's really annoying, actually. It's it's frustrating as hell. Yeah. So, in that sense, maybe it doesn't matter if you change brands because <laughs> even if you have three cameras from the same manufacturer, they're all going to be different. Exactly. Really, oh, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, all right. So that's another thing to be aware of. Don't think like it's like you know. Yeah. Anyway. Just, just a heads up mm-hmm. to, to listeners. <laughs> Look at this. Now, we've talked a little about these sensors, but we really need to explore the detail a little bit more about why and what we're talking about, 35 millimeter equivalents and so on. Mm-hmm. All righty. So, again, a Nikon guy. Sorry, but... Um, well, sorry, not sorry, but never mind. <laughs> um, in, in Nikon parlance, the difference between full frame, they call FX, 
and DX, which I call a crop sensor. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, um, the FX sensor size is 36 uh, millimeters by 24 millimeters, and it's considered to be about the same as a 35 millimeter film. So, all of this is the goal is 35 millimeter was, I think it's fair to say, the most popular film camera um, yep, size. Definitely. For a yeah, for a, for a variety of reasons, let's not explore why that was the case. But the fact is that um, the digital uh, revolution, I guess, is all about. Well, we used to be happy with thirty-five millimeter, so let's try and create a digital camera that meets the thirty-five millimeter size requirements. And so the full frame is approximately that. And of course, Canon have got exactly the same equivalent, but they just don't call it FX. What do Canon call this full frame? I've forgotten. I think they just call it full frame. I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure. But I do know um, that Canon will ref- simply refer to their crop sensors as uh, APS-C, yep. which, which funnily enough is actually not Canon's terminology. APS-C is actually Advanced Photo System Type-C, which is actually more of a, a, a pseudo-industry standard terminology. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Nikon had to be special and call theirs DX. <laughs> DX, yes. They could have just called it APS-C because <laughs> we would have known what they meant. But no, 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 that's DX, <laughs> whatever. Fine, thank you, Nikon, for that. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, the DX is, um, the way to think about it is think about your FX's um, height and that's its width. So it's 24 millimeters uh, by 16 and it's uh, you know the same ratio, so it works out about 1.5x yeah. difference. Well, the funny thing is yeah. that uh, Canon actually is slightly smaller, so they're 1.6. Uh, yeah, that's oh yeah, that's true. You're right, it is. Uh, but irrespective, if you actually look at the definition of APS-C mm-hmm. um, and the size formats, they they're both considered to be APS-C, right. but yeah. it's just one slightly smaller than the other, one slightly large. Depends on how you think about it. But anyway, well, see the things that like uh, all of the APS-Cs. manufacturers who were actually done by i think kodak made them back in the days and then nike sony Mm -hmm. makes them now um canon always had their own aps-c and so they made it from you know they made their own sensors and that's why they went with a slightly smaller sensor i think um and then actually canon actually had another size aps-h which i kind of wish Mm -hmm. was still around um and that that's like 20 it's like 29 almost by 19 millimeter i'd heard about it but i didn't know the dimensions yeah like a like mm. a, the m8 which was the first digital like a, they had that size center it was so it's a 1.3 instead of 1.5 crop uh center interesting so here's the thing think to yourself well why because like what's the what's the reason and i guess the whole idea is that um, less pixels means you can make it cheaper. Mm-hmm. But to be perfectly honest, in this day and age, it really doesn't mean that. I, I uh, When I was looking at this originally, I sort of thought to myself, right, why is it a 35 millimeter lens fitted on an FX is 35 millimeters, but on a on a DX, it's not. It's it's more like 50 millimeters. And it, that, that whole multiplication factor, it didn't make sense to me until I thought about the positioning of the sensor relative to the focal point uh, from the lens onto the sensor. Right. And so the, the funny thing is that if you keep it the same and you crop it, it's effectively applying a zoom of 1.5x when you compare it to an FX sensor using the same lens. Mm-hmm. And once I had that epiphany, it made sense. But no one, it's sort of, it's funny because when you read photography science, it's assumed knowledge. It's like, oh yeah, well with a DX, that 35 mil is going to be a 50 mil equivalent. <laughs> uh, I'm like, huh? Come again? What? <laughs> 
So once, yeah, so that's the weird thing to get your head around. It took me a while to figure out, yeah, because they because the positioning of the sensor is the same. So, yeah, just imagine, imagine the, uh, the you're looking at the lens. It takes a picture and it's at let's say 35 millimeter. Um, but let's say if that lens was exposed by a smaller sensor, you would crop in that frame itself down by you know the 1.5 factor. That mm. like so it's kind of like if you were to zoom in digital, like in post, you crop it out of that big thirty-five millimeter image. The equivalency would be like ha- like having seen it with a fifty millimeter instead. Yeah, I think the key point though is that the sensor and the resolution of the sensor, that's the the number of pixels across and down, mm. and the, the, therefore the pixel density of the sensor, as it were, that doesn't change no, it does between an FX and a DX. No, that's the point. Right. Yeah, because I mean, you could take that number of pixels and spread over a larger area, mm-hmm. and it would cover a thirty-five millimeter area, and right. it would be a, a full frame. It's just that you would have destroyed your megapixels on your sensor. You would have, yes. But the funny thing is that you would have destroyed the mega- megapixel count, uh, but the photo size would be bigger, which means that actually you would have better ga- light gathering capabilities as yeah. well. So yeah, you know exactly. Yeah. And that's when you start to realize that in the end, the whole FX-DX thing is really just all about the camera manufacturers trying to reduce costs to provide, you know, like entry-level cameras. And, and, and that seems to be one of the main drivers, not the only one, but one of the main drivers behind the whole DX movement, I guess, if you want to call it the crop sensor movement. Yep. The other thing that I learned is that because of the way that they've chosen to do it, agree or disagree with the the whole 1.5x zoom thing between fx and dx is that dx therefore means that you should be better off if you're trying to do distant photography and particularly things like some sports um or potentially if you're trying to take distance shots Mm -hmm. um but i would preface that with in relatively good light um because out of the box you've got that natural zoom with a dx that you don't have with an fx great and then, of course, conversely, FX lenses are perfect for you know more traditional things like uh, for portrait photography, mm-hmm. and yeah, and the, that lo- because they capture more light technically than lower light photography. In theory, should be better on an FX than a DX. Yeah, I mean, in theory, yeah. Yeah. in theory, in reality, though, the sensors <laughs> lately, I'm not even sure that's true anymore. Yeah. So anyway, anything else about FX and DX you want to add before we move on? Yeah, you know. The, the the like you said the advances of dx are are phenomenal that especially if you're going a dslr route i i probably wouldn't even look at a full frame i would just look at as apsc uh especially if you're like say someone who wants to shoot their kids because guess what it's cheaper mm. it'll get the job done more than adequately mm-hmm. oh and just just a key point listeners uh dear listeners <laughs> when when clay says shoot your children <laughs> he means cameras yes okay there you go but yes indeed absolutely right um it just it sounded funny to my ears that's all yes okay let's talk about some key features for uh for camera cameras let's say like real cameras that's to say things you don't ordinarily get the ability to play with on a smartphone or even on a on a compact camera and and I know that that's a bit of a broad brush there, but the truth is that you can get compact cameras where you can tweak some of these things and other ones where you can't. Um, so first of all, I guess, 
the thing that, that you will want more control over is the automatic and the manual controls. So things like uh, just talking about the, your, your priority mode. So you can set like, I want to have a priority given to my aperture. So um, my aperture is going to be set at this level, at this size, and everything else automatically adjusts around it to get me the best exposure. Maybe you can have an automatic mode for um, prioritizing your shutter speed mm-hmm. and everything else will adjust automatically around that based on what the camera you know figures out for you. Um, and the ability to go completely manual on absolutely every th- every setting. So if you want to have manual ISO, manual aperture, and manual shutter speed, you can do all of that. So you know that's a big reason to have that kind of control. Of course, that kind of control with with great control comes great responsibility. <laughs> um, and yes, you can severely screw it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. But then again, that's the whole. That's the whole point: is that you can make you can take something that that a photo where you have no such controls on a smartphone. It'll just tell you, you know, we believe that this is the best exposure and that's the best, you know, color that you should get out of this, and you will like it. <laughs> or you can actually start playing with these things and realize, well, I can bring this detail out. I can focus more on this subject. I can change the depth of field and I can get this background blur that I can't get any other way uh, because I have all these things I can now configure. I have control of them. But then, of course, the challenge is learning how to do that. So, But having those features is step one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Without that, you can't do anything. Um, okay, the next key feature, I think, of having a more advanced camera, a real camera, is um, your control over burst mode, uh, the speed of your burst modes, for example. I was thinking about this. You know, you can get an iPhone and you can take burst mode photos. <laughs> yes. But it's nothing like the sort of control you can have if you've got a real camera. Right. You can't, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, that's a big deal. Um, timed exposure, that's another one. Uh, I do think that, again, smartphones have gotten better in that respect. Yeah. But because of the size of their sensor, there's just a limit to how good the timed exposure is going to even look. Yep, I agree. So, yeah. Okay. Um, another thing, when you brought this up before, just to circle back to it, when you're getting a body that you can get bodies for a camera that will have a motor built into them and that motor can drive um, the focusing mechanism uh, and... That's the sort of thing that you. Well, I'm just thinking about you. You probably know more about this than I do at this point. Because to be honest, <laughs> um, you've got the different positioners on there. There's there's a screw type, and then there's um, yeah. Basically, you have some some cameras to save money. They took the motors out, and so if you bought a lens with the motor in it, it works. If you bought a lens without a motor, like the old lenses. It, it would have to be used in many focus modes, basically. Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing that, that I didn't understand initially. Um, and when I fought, bought, first bought the camera, uh, the D5500, I learned very quickly it doesn't have a body motor, right. so it can't actually focus older lenses. So I had to be very careful to get AFS lenses. And, um, and that was fine. I didn't make that mistake, but I figured that out quickly enough. But 
the the problem was that when I went to, well, sorry, the advantage of going to something like a D500, which you pointed out before, is yes, it does have a a, a mod a, a motor mm-hmm. in the body, which means I can get a, a lens that's twenty years old if I want to. Because the funny thing I also learned is that a lot of people say that the best Nikon glass is twenty to thirty years old. Yeah, the good stuff, really good stuff. Yeah, and it's like if you want to have all of the modern functionality and features, like have all of that autofocus. Um, you know, fast autofocus you know, and the best lenses, having that body with a motor in it will set you up for that future. If you want to invest in those those older lenses, then you can do it. And plus, older lenses are generally, oddly enough, in many respects, cheaper. Yes, um, You can grab a real bargain and that's the sort of thing that you should think about. If that's something you want to get into, it could stunt your ability to do that in future. So that's something to be aware of as well. Another one, another key feature is image stabilization in the body of the camera versus in the lens of the camera. Yeah, so so Nikon, Canon, in the olden days <laughs> when the DSLRs, they decided that stabilization in the lens was the way to go. Minolta, Canon and Minolta, back when they still had a digital SLR, decided to put it in the body. And of course, it was a little bit too late when they did do it. But it was phenomenal because that meant that any lens that you put on your body was stabilized. And especially wide-angle lenses, which most of the time, actually, I don't think any brand makes a wide-angle stabilized lens. Because wide-angle lenses, you really generally don't need to stabilize it. Because it's not like it's the, 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 the front element isn't far out that you're introducing a lot of instability to it. Mm-hmm. But again, like if you're doing low light photography and you want to handhold a wide angle lens, well, if it's in, in body stabilized, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. So just quickly about how the stabilization work, optical Im- image stabilization um, that I'm aware of is essentially, it's, it's usually several uh, balanced um, counterweights that essentially spin around. Mm-hmm. Um, that's essentially my very bad description of it. <laughs> how would you describe it? Yeah, no, that, that, that's about it, yeah. It's a, it's sort of countering the the movement, trying to get something, trying to get the plane to stay at a certain level, mm-hmm. right? So countering back and forth. Uh, and if you have it inside of the body, it is actually being stabilizing. It's actually stabilizing the sensor itself. So that, that's the interesting thing is it's the same kind of idea of um, why that we we why we put a spin when we throw a football. Mm-hmm. We we essentially the rotation on. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say bullets and artillery shells. We're just talking about potentially shooting our children. So never mind. <laughs> but you know, you spin it around, and and by giving it that rotational, um, that rotational momentum, uh, it will stabilize the trajectory of you know <laughs> what you're shooting, mm-hmm. um, or in this case, it will um, you know reduce the vibration um, from hand. Well, it'll reduce the impact of subtle hand movements for handheld photography, and that can make a big difference when it comes to how many stops. Um, you get and that's something we'll get to as well (laughs) (sighs) anyway all right another feature just to throw in another key feature of it a real in air quotes camera and i and i almost didn't write this one down was built-in flash versus without Mm. because the d5500 has a built-in flash the d500 doesn't right and it's funny because the D500 is three times the price. Actually, it's three and a half times the price, but it doesn't have a built-in flash. And that's counterintuitive. And the reason, 
my good, I can't, I'm, I'm going to try and explain. And this makes me a Nikon apologist right now, but because <laughs> you, you can have Nikon apologists and Canon apologists in the same way you can have Apple apologists, I think. Mm-hmm. But never mind that. The rationale goes like this built in flashes in, in any kind of SLR, DSLR are rubbish. And if you want a flash, you're going to get a real flash. And of course, a, an external flash. Um, you know, in Nikon terminology is a speed light, mm-hmm. which took me a little while to get my head around why they called it a speed light, but never mind. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the fact is that those um, speed lights or external flashes can give you far much, far better illumination. It can direct the illumination to bounce it in different directions to the left and the right, up and different angles towards the ceiling. You could put diffuser domes on them if you want to to try and spread that light out and reduce the and, and so you don't have that problem with the whole the whole red eye effect. Even though you can do red eye reduction, it destroys the color of the of the um of the person's eyes if you use it. So it's kind of like hmm. So okay. The built-in flashes, I think there is a benefit to having a built-in flash for uh moments when you're in a pinch, right? The mm. Yeah. The when the closer a, a flash is to the lens, the worse it is. So sure. if you were to put a speed light on top of your camera, it is moved away. If you were to actually move the speed light away from the camera altogether, you actually can sort of model the light better and give a better contour to a person's face. Let's say if you're doing portraits, mm-hmm. um, so it it actually could make something sort of pop. The reason why I think a camera would benefit from having an, a, a pop-up flash is that, let's say if you were to have a speed light, that pop-up flash in a lot of cameras can actually uh, uh, serve as a commander for that for the speed light. So you could actually mm. have it be the commander to to have your speed light um, uh, be triggered. And that's mm-hmm, why, sure. in, in a way, I, I, I was actually surprised when the D500 didn't have a pop-up flash because I thought that they would have that ability to have it be... So when, when you have it be a commander, it actually doesn't contribute to most of the flash. It only gives a pop to actually tell the other flash, hey, you need to go off. Now, I think some cameras have wireless flash built in. And I'm, I'm, I believe the D500 probably has that feature. And maybe that's why they didn't put it in. Mm. I wish it did. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. I, I, I did my research. Oh, okay. no. So you had to buy See, a commander for it then. Well, well, hang on, hang on. No, I already had. I already had an SB five hundred uh, Speedlight. Okay. So I didn't need to. I, if I want to separate the flash from the camera, okay. um, I've got the the cool little foot mount thingy, and I can and I can put it off in a corner or or attach it to some kind of a light box, which I don't have. Um, yet, no, I'm not going to get one, <laughs> probably. Um, I, I should never say never. But anyway, the point is that I need a commander module for it. So unfortunately, no, it doesn't. Oh, okay. And yeah. Because the thing is that the, the D800, which is essentially kind of what the D500's body is, right? It's kind of like a yeah. D800. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, rather than the D5. The D800 has a built-in flash. And so like when a D500 came out and it had no mm. built-in flash... It actually kind of surprised me a little bit. Yeah, it's a bit odd. Yeah. But again, off flash is better than, or flash separated farther from your lens is better. It's always going to be better than flash right above your lens. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the other thing to keep in mind with that is that that's exactly um, because the built-in flash can only give it 
um, give you light illumination from that one angle, which is directly at the subject and then directly back at the lens again, mm-hmm. you lose a lot of that depth and it, it makes it has a more of a sameness to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing is that the difference between a pro, pro, like uh, the professional portrait photography is that separation and having those light boxes away gives you that ability. Like you said, at best was, was it gives you that depth and it helps you to, to get the subject to pop a bit more. Yep. Whereas, you, you're kind of stuck with a one kind of look um, if you use that built-in flash in the same position. Um, and I think the only good good reason for it is um, in a pinch, if you, don't have, if you don't have that other flash, and it's also not just having the flash, the external flash, it's also having the time to, to connect it into the boot, turn it on and, and, and set it up. And that takes real time. And if you want to get a camera out in a hurry, that's not, a, that's not an option. Right. So anyway, mind you, if that was the case, you'd just take it with a compact camera. <laughs> yeah. And, and just as a quick explanation too, for those that didn't didn't follow the whole what what Clay was just talking about regarding the whole um, flash triggering other flashes, is that there's there's a couple of ways you can trigger them. You can trigger them with a genuine wireless remote where it's a radio trigger, mm-hmm. and you can also trigger them with a a small flash first, very very dim flash from from the built in, and then that can set, you set up your other flashes in a room as slaves, and they will look for that pulse of light, and then that will trigger them. Yep. Um, but to be honest, you need multiple flashes and to do that, and I don't know how many people have that, but in any case, oh my goodness. So, I are there any other key features that you see apart from what we've just listed? Um, you know, for having a dedicated real camera, it could be any of those. It could be. Um, I just want to point out. I don't want to talk about like DSLR. We've already covered like DSLR, like having the SLR and the mirror versus mirrorless micro four thirds and sensor sizes. So, any other features that that tweaking that gives you that a real camera gives you that you can't get out of a smartphone camera, for example. Um, so the, the sensors being bigger, uh, you know, uh, you can actually you can actually crop in. Uh, you know, so you could zoom digitally after, which you you could do on your iPhone, but the ability to do it on your on uh, on a DSLR or a mirrorless camera is actually better. Mm-hmm. So I would say uh, there there have been times where where I, there, there's a moment that I needed to capture, and and some of my cameras are fixed lenses, so I I, I had to crop into a 50 millimeter equivalent instead of my 35 millimeter equivalent. But yeah, I think you, you named everything else, yeah. All right, cool. Solver is a calculation app by Aqualia for both the Mac and iOS. Now, I'm careful to call Solver a calculation app because it's more than a calculator and it's quicker and easier to use than a spreadsheet is. Just start typing away and in real time, the answers will show up in the right-hand column. Let's say you want to figure out 10% of 200. Just type that exactly and there's your answer. Converting currency, 10 euro plus 10 USD in AUD, done. Crazy things like you want to know how many minutes you've been alive? Try 42 years, 44 weeks, and one day as minutes. And it turns out I've been alive 22,535,000 minutes. Yay. Getting old. Anyway, it's my go-to app when I'm converting between Celsius and Fahrenheit. 120F in C. Done. Now, new in Solver 3 for Mac, only just recently released... There's time and date calculations like 30th August 2017 to today. And then you can specify in weeks, 
in days, in hours, whatever you like. You can add and subtract hours, days, or weeks from a date. It's so easy. You can link different result lines together easily to create more complicated calculations with subtotals included. And it now comes with full dark mode support, and it looks tremendous. If you have a touch bar on your Mac, it supports that now too. There's full integration with Spotlight Search. With Automator, Solver now has a command line tool, and that integrates it beautifully with Alfred. It also has an integrated sheet management system, and you can easily share your working and your results. The list of great features just goes on and on. If you're not convinced, then go to that URL in the show notes and check out the Mac version, which has a 30-day free trial. See, for me, I've been using Solver 2 for years, and the new features made it an instant upgrade for me. I love it that much. I use it all the time. Solver for Mac is available from the solver.app website, and the iOS version is available from the iOS App Store. If you use the URL... In the show notes, it helps out the show. So please use that URL in the show notes to learn more about this helpful little app. And if you visit that URL before the 30th of June, 2019, you will get 33% off. So act now and don't wait. Thank you to Aqualia with their amazing app, Solver, for once again sponsoring the Engineered Network. Let's keep moving. Okay, so um, common use cases. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so there's a lot of different use cases and I'm going to be very, oh, I don't know, what's the word? Um, same, well, not same. I've got to apply my own personal perspective on on this because this is sort of the way I see it. Yep. The fact is there are lots more use cases for photography. You can take photos of anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was thinking about the other day, what's one I missed? Well, you can take photos of bacteria in a microscope, <laughs> yep. but that's not really what... <laughs> That's not, I'm going to call that not a common use case. So for me, the thing that drove me to wanting a, a real camera was a very specific use case, and it is my children. The fact is, my kids play sports, and the vast majority of the sports that my kids were playing was essentially were outdoor sports. And so I had massive issues trying to get decent photos of them when they reached a certain size of field. So my boys all started playing soccer in other parts of the world. They'll call it football, but they what they mean to say is they mean soccer. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> the point is, see, when I say soccer, you know what I'm talking about, yes. right? You go to the UK and you say soccer, they look at you funny, <laughs> yes. but never mind. It's fine. You know what I mean? Yes. That game. That game yeah. The only, the truly, only truly global sport in the world that is played in practically every country is actually is soccer. Very true. It's not cricket. It's not cricket. It's not gridiron. It's not baseball. No, it's not. It's not even ice hockey. It's especially not ice hockey, especially when you're living in the near the equator. <laughs> yes, exactly. But anyway, yeah. Anyway, or Florida. Never mind. <laughs> so, geez, I'm derailing myself. What I mean is when they're playing soccer and the kids are little, and I mean, you know, like seven, eight, nine years old, mm-hmm. they don't make them run up and down a whole football field, you know, in terms of the size, you know, like 100 yards. They don't do that to the poor kids because they've only got very little legs and they're going to get worn out real quick. So the games don't go for an hour or more. The games only go for a short period of time, but they're on smaller fields. And if they're on a smaller field, it's a lot easier to take photos with them uh, with a smartphone or even a compact. It's fine. You don't need big zoom and you can still tell, you know, they're not just some kind of a blurry dot in the distance. (laughs) However, as they were getting older, and as they get older, they can also play other sports like cricket and have massive fields. 
and where you sit in the grandstands is very far from where they're playing. And if you can get down to the sideline, that helps. But even then, you reach a point where the smartphone just doesn't cut it. So that was where what tipped me over. So I'd been suffering, I guess, coping, managing, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. making do. Making do is probably the best All the expression. <laughs> All of the above with my smartphone camera for the longest time or with a with a compact camera or what I would just what I would have traditionally called a point and shoot. But anyway, the point is that outdoor sports on larger fields that was what tipped me over. And more recently, going to the D5500 was the indoor, which we'll talk a little bit about why I had issues and why I upgraded to the D500 because of indoor sports uh, in a little bit. So beyond those use cases for sports, there's also um, like portrait photography. And I, and I thought about portrait photography as really two kinds of portraits. You've got individual portraits and then you've got large group portraits. And I think they're two very different problems. Yes. Also, I've, so, yeah, so I came to learn, right? Um. Uh, landscapes before I actually cared about, you know, before I had a family and and so on, I hardly ever took photos of myself or people. I'd take photos of landscapes, you know, like mountains, bridges, buildings, that sort of thing. Uh, and then when I got married, my wife said, you're not in any of these photos. I'm like, <laughs> that, that's true. Why would I? I think the word I said, actually at the, at the time, Clay, I actually said to her, why would I ruin the photo by putting my face in it? <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, she was she was sounds a, like something I would say. Yeah, but she was appalled at my response. But to me, that was photography at the time. Yeah. And anyway, so I've I've since done a bit of a, I've changed my perspective. Anyway, so you introduced me to the concept of street photography, mm-hmm. which I, I I didn't realize, but that that is a bona fide use case. Yeah. Just general purpose, out and about. You don't know what you're going to take a photo of. Some so it could be something, some anywhere in the street. Could be car streets, anything. I don't know, people, malls, I don't know, anything, street photography. There you go. Uh, night photography, as in like astrological photography, which I'm just starting to flex my muscles with um, and I still suck at, but that's okay. It's a long road. We, we all suck at it. <laughs> it's hard. It's Very hard. hard. It is. And uh, and then I thought about macro photography, like super extreme close Another hard one. I mean, let's just like, <laughs> that's another hard one too, right? Yep. Um, any others you'd like to add to that list? Uh, oh, underwater photography, which oh, that's true, is another hard one. It's 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 loads of fun when you not when you nail it, but oh gosh, is it hard? Hell yeah, yeah. So, um, all right. So there's underwater. Any others you can that come to mind? Um, anything that involves flash is is um, uh, you know, common because yeah, you know you're in you're indoor. I mean, for sports, indoor sports. I imagine you're not using flash, are you? No. Okay. No, no, no. Probably, probably would no. be distracting. <laughs> yeah, that I, there's there's rules. Oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no flash photography. Yeah. They don't say strictly no flash photography, but they say um, please refrain from using flash photography. Ah, okay. Yeah. I refrain myself from using mm-hmm. a flash. And the other problem is a flash in a huge open arena like a basketball court. Uh, you know, it's like get that's... Lost. It's going to get lost and yeah. you're not going to get much out of it unless you've got some kind of like, if you had like 50 right, exactly. <laughs> all trained together and you're like one massive blast of light, like, blank. oh, was that a lightning strike? No, that's just John taking a photo. <laughs> mm, yeah, no, not happening. Yeah. All right. I think the time has come for us to talk about the photography triangle or the exposure triangle, I think is probably the more preferred name. Yeah. Yeah. 
Here we go. So, <laughs> let's talk about the three pieces. And the threesome. I'll start with the one, the threesome, yes. The three, uh, the first of the three um, is uh, b- referred to by some photographers as not one of the three. <laughs> mm, is that so? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing that I've been reading about. Yeah. And I've spoken to different different people about it that are into photography about ISO. And does ISO actually count? Because... Yeah, it's like ISO back in the days of film. You'd buy film that was a certain ISO. Yeah. It's not like you could just adjust it. You didn't say like, well, you could, hang on you a sec could while adjust I change it. my film. Sorry? You could adjust it. It's just that you would have to wait 30, 24 to 36 exposures. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so here's the thing, man. I, I It's like, hang on a second, hold that pose. I'm just going to swap out my film yes. for some 400. Right said no photographer ever All right exactly and i'm just saying so the whole ability to tweak iso is something that has only really been possible or feasible yeah. in the digital transition so you know what they used to call it before was a sort of a seesaw so the iso was mm. the was the fulcrum right and d- your mm-hmm. shutter speed and aperture were at either ends and that's what you adjusted so iso in in a way in a way i still treat iso like I shoot film, in a way. Sure. Right. I, I don't do auto ISO. Um. I, I. I. sort of like. I sort of leave it at a hundred when I'm outside. Bring it mm. to like four hundred or eight hundred when I'm inside. Uh. You know. Mm. So, I kind of treat it the same way. And in in a way, it's not really a try. It's a triangle, but it's kind of like a triangle that is has a fixed fulcrum. <laughs> I kind of like that better, actually. I like that that take on it rather than the ones that you'll find in popular literature and photography that lately they, it, it's a genuine bona fide triangle mm. and ISO is one of the sides. And I look at it and I'm like, it doesn't quite feel right to me and I like that fulcrum idea better. Mm. So we've said ISO 100 times now probably, but we haven't even explained what it is. So ISO actually oddly, is the name of an organization yep. because, well, totally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, why wouldn't you? I don't know why they call it. <laughs> so, the International Organization for Standardization, which, of course, is IOS. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds familiar? <laughs> yeah, but no, it's not that, not IOS. that IOS. It's actually, yeah, and because, of course, I, if I remember correctly, that's actually the English translation and I think it it's originally is, is, is French or Italian or something. something like the that, point yeah. is that yeah, the point is that actually it's written the other way around, international standardization for organization. So that's ISO. Anyway, whatever. The point is ISO is the name of the or standards organization. So not immediately helpful. It was originally an amalgamation of two standards for film exposure, which was ASA and DIN. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was around 1974. And it's sort of been progressively revised in the years since then. Uh, and all it's trying to do is uh, calibrate the levels um, of the digital sensors as the digital as our digital technology has sort of has progressed. And there's this concept of base ISO for a cam- for a digital camera being the sensitivity at which there is the least amount of noise, and therefore you will get the highest quality. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing about base ISO, try and get a manufacturer to tell you what the base ISO is. <laughs> like they don't tell you, do they? Yeah, I mean, I mean the the way the way you know how uh, what their base ISO is is that uh, what is the lowest one? Because remember, you can actually go to fifty or twenty five on some of them, right? Oh sure. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But there's 
like so my Sony, it has um it has it goes to a hundred and then after that it goes a few below a hundred and those have an underline. So that's basically beyond its nature native state. And then of course then it goes mm-hmm. the opposite direction. And that's mm-hmm. anything anything away from that one hundred or I think Nikon is two hundred. Anything away from that number is not baseline. <laughs> So baseline yeah. is basically whatever that number is it, 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 that it tells you that it doesn't have any asterisks or anything like it. Anything away from that is is a deviation of baseline. Okay. So on the Nikon's, they don't publicize that. They don't indicate that. They don't mark that. As far as I can tell, mm. on I think on Nikon my, is two hundred. If I if I remember correctly, even though I know Nikon uses Sony sensors, but uh, but mm. they they uh, they they you know Nikon does. Nikon does things with Sony sensors that Sony doesn't seem to do, and Nikon almost does. Uh, Nikon is almost like magicians with their sensors, and of course they don't make it themselves. Huh. So, um, but yeah, I, I believe Nikon uh, is two hundred. Yeah. So the research that I've done is it's it depends on the model and the, obviously the sensor. Mm-hmm. But I I've seen one hundred, I've seen two hundred, but I did some digging specifically on my model, and there's a whole bunch of people that have much more camera nutcases than I hope I'm ever going to become. Um, anyway, we'll see. I, I don't think so, but we'll <laughs> see. I, I shouldn't pre- predict my own future there because I tend to overthink things, but never mind. Um, they've plotted the dynamic range and other performance you know, measurements of their sensors on all the different models of cameras. And there seemed to be an agreement that for the D500, uh, it's about an ISO of 160 based oh. on that. Okay. So slightly less than 200. Mm-hmm. But irrespective, I don't think that you could probably tell the difference with the with the naked eye. You'd have to, you know. Anyway, yeah. I, I, if you go from one hundred to two hundred, you're not going to notice the difference. No, you're not yeah. exactly. And it's the thing. The thing though about ISO that I found difficult to grasp initially is that it's not really sensitivity exactly. The sensitivity of the sensor technically isn't adjustable. It's baked into the sensor when you actually make the sensor itself mm. the sensor elements like you can't adjust it it's like it's based on the technology that you use when you manufacture it so the sensitivity of the base iso the sensitivity the sensitivity but iso is more about a map it's like mapping kind of how bright the photo should look based on the exposure that was applied to the sensor when you took that photo mm-hmm. that's my best way of explaining it as i understand it anyhow yeah. it's um yeah, you can tell you can tell the sensor to interpret or map that as though it was a brighter ISO, as it was a more sensitive ISO. But the fact is, it's technically not sensitivity, and that's the thing that's hard to get your head around. Well, I'm sorry, it's hard for me to get my head around anyway. I think it's hard for all of us. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a bit strange because it's an approximation of the different film, uh, the film ISOs, which was far more of a direct correlation to how sensitive it was yes. and hence people think of it that way. Yes. But in the digital sense, there is no direct equivalent. So in any case, doubling it and halving it is seems to be the way that you know people like to think about it. Although if you were to spin the dial on my D500 or the D5500, you'll have multiple stops in between. But generally speaking, ISOs tend to go in, in doubles roughly. So ISO 100, 200, 400, 800, 1600. Some of them will have gaps in between, like I've got a 500 and a 640. But generally speaking, the doubling and halving is increasing or decreasing it by one stop. Right. 
Uh, yeah. And it's like, I'm not going to explain stops for the minute. And I want to hold on stops. Just <laughs> we'll put a stop on stops. <laughs> yes. Just for the minute. Yes. Just for the minute. <laughs> because it's, it's, it's a fascinating idea that took me a long time to get my head around. I said, what the heck are they talking about? I really need one more stop. I'm like, yeah, so do I on my bus route. What are you talking about? <laughs> Anyway, so it took me a while to get my head around this, that photography term. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Mm. The thing that's bizarre with ISO is it gets to the point of insanity. Because um, some cameras go above 100,000 ISO. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at my D5, my D500, it supposedly goes up into the millions. I'm like, seriously? <laughs> Come on. And it also goes below 100. And it, they start putting an L in front of it. So you got L 0.3, L 0.7, L 1.0. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay. So, in all seriousness, I don't want to spend too much time trying to cover the fringes of the ISO range because the reality is the higher you push your ISO, the more noise you're going to get, the less the quality of the image. That's all there is to it. And and the way, I, the way I've learned regarding photography is you want to brighten the photo, capture more light through any other means necessary before you resort to ISO because... <laughs> All you're going to do is destroy the quality of your image yeah. by cranking the ISO. Yep. Enough said on ISO, you reckon? Yep. Awesome. So let's move on to one that's a lot easier to understand, which is shutter speed. Mm-hmm. That's like totally easy to understand. Shutter opens, lets the light in, closes. That's the end of it. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, image too dark, let in more light. <laughs> that's it. It's pretty simple. And uh, in, in photography, it's expressed in fractions of a second. Yep. Um, gen- well, Unless it's a timed exposure. Then we're talking about seconds. So, yeah. <laughs> or longer. Then you're talking in seconds, yeah. But or longer, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, minutes and get some star trials going. Yep. Hmm. Now you're talking. Um, although I haven't tried that yet, actually. I, so, I yes. don't have anywhere dark enough to try it, but I want to so badly. Yeah, I, I, it's funny because that photo that I sent you the other, like just last night, I took that in my front driveway mm. of the... Oh, I should probably put it put it in the show notes for people that are interested, but um, or I should put up on my PixelFed instance, and I'll put a link in the show notes. But um, the thing is that it's um, I think that's pretty decent considering that was like I think it was like a thirteen or ten or thirteen second exposure, mm-hmm. um, and considering where I live, there was a reasonable definition of those stars. So I think I'm lucky where I live because I do live like the center of Brisbane is 58 kilometers from me by road. Mm-hmm. It's probably only about 50 Ks. The amount of light pollution in the area is is still pretty bad. Um, like I can, if you, on a clear night, you can just make out the, the Milky Way, mm-hmm. wow. which is nice. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the thing that stunned me was how much more um, the camera could draw out than the naked eye could draw out with a timed exposure, mm-hmm. with a long exposure. Yeah. But I guess where you are, there's just way too much light pollution. There is, yeah. I mean, my house itself is located in an area that is pretty dark, but it's still, it's not good enough. It's not like I'm going, you know, not like I, I, I could go to the Everglades and actually have a better chance, which I probably should do, but mosquitoes, you know. mozzies suck yes i hate them yes we hate them all right fair enough um okay so um fractions of a second okay so again if the whole idea of of halves kind of you know is relates to stops so if you go half of your previous shutter speed then that's one stop you know Mm -hmm. again we'll we'll sort of talk about the whys later but it, it, it generally progresses in halves 
maybe you can help explain something here because this is something that's really irritated me. Mm. If it was halves, it would work in halves, oddly. <laughs> so, let's go with one second, yeah. half a second, a quarter of a second, an eighth. So, for then, for some reason, we don't go to one sixteenth. We go to one fifteenth. <laughs> Okay, don't understand that, but let's just let's just assume one fifteenth, and I'm thinking it's got something to do with the whole sixty seconds in a minute rubbish, which is not decimal time, and let's not go there either. But okay, after the one fifteenth, you go one thirtieth, sixtieth, and then of course you don't go to one twenty, one one twentieth. No, you go to one twenty fifth, probably. <laughs> is that well? Of course, <laughs> and why we don't know. No Never mind. And then after that, it's one two fiftieth, and then one five hundredth, and then one one thousandth. I think they do it. They, they transition it to make those next numbers easier to get to. Like so, you go from the one fiftieth to one thirtieth to one sixtieth. Then uh, transition one twenty fifth, one two fiftieth, five hundred, <laughs> one thousand. Please, you, I was really hoping that you could give me a better answer than that. Like the guy that knows more about photography than most people I've met and I'm like if that's the explanation if that's really why I am so dis- that's such an anticlimax that's, just making the next number easier that, that's oh, how dude. that's how I that's how I I've never actually looked into it but when I when I first got into digital mm-hmm. photography and that's when I explored more of these things and I was like huh yeah I looked at it I mapped it sometimes I write things out and I, I think I wrote that out it's like okay I think that's why and then I took that mm. and <laughs> And ran with it. <laughs> well, you know what? You're probably right. But uh, any listeners that know the real reason why, I could not find out why. I couldn't figure out why. And I just put that into the I can't explain it basket in my notes. For those that actually are on on, on Patreon and get a copy of the notes, um, you know, because uh, uh, some patrons, um, they get the raw show notes. Mm. You'll see in questions, in brackets, why? Question mark, question mark, question mark. I don't get it. <laughs> Please enlighten us. In any case, um, the, the thing about shutter speed is more light is good so long as things aren't moving. Because yeah. if things are moving, <laughs> well, that's not good. So movement is the enemy of shutter speed. And ultimately, moving, and we think about it, well, maybe the subject that I'm trying to take a photo of is moving. Well, it's not just that. Maybe you're moving. Right. Because, yeah, because you're hol- if you're holding it by hand then you could be shaking it and you don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. Your hand is moving because we we as human beings, we're constantly moving. It's like even when you're standing still, you're rocking yep. back and forth, left and right. And you don't even realize you're doing it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, unless you're in the fetal position and you're rocking in the corner of a room, that's a, that's a different problem. <laughs> but you know. We're we're like uh, we're like that that stabilization in the lens and the bodies, right? We're trying to st- you're trying to stabilize yourself. The Earth is moving, so we're, you're forever countering whatever movements are happening. Oh yeah, exactly. And that, the funny thing is, people don't stop and realize, but two people, sorry, two feet, and you're standing upright. Mm-hmm. There's actually nothing that you can actually stand on two points that will be inherently stable. You need a minimum of three contact points, but we don't have three legs. Yeah, we're not kangaroos. Right. No, we're not. Can- does a tail count as a leg? I, I, I don't say know. So. <laughs> I guess it sort of does if it's sitting down. Hmm. I mean, I that, really that, kick, that. that kick is so powerful. And how does it deliver the kick? It gets on that tail. Well, I mean, I will admit that kangaroos are very cool. Yes. And um, yeah, they're awesome. And yeah, they're Australian, yo. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> um, but is it, hmm, never mind that. Um, it's quite possibly the coolest thing about Australia when you consider that we have nine out of the ten of the most poisonous snakes in the world. 
that's that's a bit of a downer. So kangaroo, thumbs up. Poisonous snakes, thumbs down. <laughs> Two thumbs down. <laughs> Two thumbs down. Yeah, definitely on nine. Uh, no. Oh, man, I'm mangling analogies and mixing metaphors badly. So, okay, moving the camera. So you're going to shake it by holding it in your hands, even if you think you are the most steady-handed micro laser surgeon in the world, you are still going to cause camera shake. So if you have a long uh, exposure because you've got a slow shutter speed, so you open the shutter, it's open for a long period of time, you are going to get motion blur caused by that camera shake. And it may only be subtle, but if you're trying to take a sharp photo... It's it's going to kill you. So that's not a good thing. Um, and the other thing that people don't think about as well is that the actual shutter mechanism itself mm-hmm. creates shake and vibration. Yep. Yeah. So that act of opening the shutter and closing it can be enough, especially if you're trying to take something that is a very long exposure. Um, there are certain cameras that have, like my D500 has got a mode where it essentially, you know, it's mirror up. Mm-hmm. So you don't actually have that. The exposure is purely controlled. The shutter is controlled, um, uh, well, I suppose, effectively digitally, isn't it? Yeah. So The shutter is basically a global shutter on the center probably. So it's, 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 it's fascinating. Uh, so anyway, so that's, that's the first thing is a movement. And of course, the other obvious thing of movement is that it's not you moving the camera or the world moving or whatever else um, or if there's an earthquake going on, in which case if there's an earthquake going on, it's probably a bad time <laughs> to take a photo. Just thinking about unless, it. unless you're a, a journalist well i guess but <laughs> it, okay you're standing in the middle of an earthquake going on around you the first thing you think is hmm hey should i get my tripod or <laughs> should i shoot handheld hmm buildings turn the is on there you go that's <laughs> yeah, so just the buildings falling down around you and you're thinking i better grab that tripod <laughs> anyway okay never mind <laughs> In all seriousness, the uh, the most likely th- cause of movement isn't you or the camera. Usually, it's going to be the subject that you're trying to take a photo of. So, if they're moving quickly, clearly, <laughs> you're going to get some motion blur yep. if you've got a very long exposure. So, yeah, movement is the enemy of shutter speed, and that's the thing. So, um, the thing that's that I, I took a while to get my head around was the the good thing about indoor portraits is you can make them so light and bright because people aren't moving. Yeah. So even if you're indoors and you're poor, you've got poor lighting, that's not so bad because you can have a longer exposure with, with, a, big, with a longer shutter speed um, and it, that's easy to get more light, mm-hmm. you know. But indoor sports, oh, man, that's hard. <laughs> it's not an animal. And it's, it, is, it is so hard So because um, you need more light. Yep. So you need to have, you know, uh, uh, um, the shutter needs to be open for longer. But then if you do that and you've got people running around a lot in your sports, then you're going to get motion blur. You're going to get blurry photos. They're not going to be sharp. And they're going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. It's it's it starts to you start to fight with it, and that's when you start to learn. Oh dear, this is where it, this is where photography gets hard. Yeah. So anyway, do you do? By the way, when you're doing indoor stuff, do you do a lot of panning with the move with the players, like your sons? I can do. Oh, okay. I can. It de- it depends on where they are. So if I'm on the sideline mm-hmm. and I'm in the middle, I try to position myself as close as I can to the middle. But not too far down the other end, because then you're mixing with the uh, with the opposition team's family, mm-hmm. and some of them get really rowdy. And you're <laughs> like, "I'm I'm encroaching upon enemy territory. I don't want to go too close." So, it, it, yeah, you know, and, and and if they're if in basketball, which is the predominantly the indoor sport, sometimes it's indoor netball, sometimes it's um uh like indoor like futsal, indoor soccer. Mm-hmm. But gen the vast majority of the time, uh, it's basketball for me at the moment. Uh, with my oldest son and um, 
you know, when they're taking a shot, like a free throw or something like that, um, or they're doing, they're going in for a layup, then typically the last few moments, I'm not panning a lot. Okay. But sometimes I'll try and try and get shots of them as they as they're dribbling from one end to the other, and that's there's a lot of panning. Is there is does it work when you're doing the panning? Like you know, are you are you happy with the results? Not so well. No. Okay. Not so well. No. Okay. Not so well. No. And that's um, I think it. it I've only used the D five hundred twice. Mm. Um, in that setting, um, I'll have another chance tomorrow night. And um, yeah, um, we we can talk a little bit more yeah. about this in a minute, yeah. but but in any case. Uh, so anything more you want to add about shutter speed? Um, so when you're looking at a shutter speed and you have a lens, usually, let's say if it's a 50 millimeter lens equivalent on your body of like 75 millimeter or so, usually you want the shutter speed. If you, uh, unless you're really good at holding your, your camera steady, usually you want that shutter speed to be something closer to like one one hundredth. One 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 twenty fifth, so that um, like let's say if it's fifty millimeter uh, equivalent, usually you want it to have have it slightly faster than the length of equivalency wise. So you know with my um, X one hundred, it is a thirty five millimeter equivalent. Very much, I'm actually using it at one one thirtieth or faster and i just move everything else around it to give a proper exposure mm-hmm. right and so you know if you're going to be shooting a hundred millimeter lens uh you're shooting it at one five one fifth one one fifth one fifteenth of a second it's going to give you probably <laughs> very blurry images uh one thirtieth is still going to do the same one sixtieth you, you, you'd have to be like a, a, a tripod You'd be closer to one, uh, one to one one twenty fifth to get the proper uh, uh, fr- sort of freezing of your lens. Uh, you know, not the motion itself, but your lens stabilizing your lens. Cool. All right. Let's talk about aperture, mm-hmm. and I don't mean the the software that <laughs> Apple's you know still st- off you know you know. <laughs> Just quickly about anger, uh, uh, aperture. I almost went the route of aperture, almost, and I decided. Well, mm. you know, I think I might might discontinue it, and I'm so angry that I was right. <laughs> but yes, let's yeah. let's go on to oh. aperture. <laughs> yeah, but mate, so many people they still so angry yeah. about that. Yeah. Hey, because aperture was such a good it was, bit of software. It was amazing. Alas, maybe they'll bring it back someday. Who can say? <laughs> Um, with the new Mac Pro. You never know. Mm. Maybe that's a, a secret reveal in October or something. <laughs> okay. So, um, aperture on an actual camera is what I'm talking about. So, real simple. It's the size of the hole between the lens opening and the sensor. Yep. There you go. That's it. That's it. Um, okay. bit more. Um, <laughs> so, the smaller the hole, and this is the, the bit that took me a little while to get my head around. The smaller the hole then the deeper the depth of field that you can focus on. Yep. And thinking about the physics behind why that is the way it is, it's sort of very difficult to describe with words. So I think at this point I'll pass on trying to explain that, <laughs> but it's just essentially the distance that the light travels from the extremity of the lens, that is to say the outside of the the lens 
the <laughs> circumference of the lens, the outer circumference of the lens, let's say, the distance it travels then through that hole mm-hmm. um, to the back of the sensor. Let me let me give let me give a, 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 an explanation. I, let's see, listeners, the you listeners shall, shall tell you. Okay, so imagine going surfing, right? And the waves are creating a, a pipe. Is that what they call it when it goes over? Yeah. Right. So the imagine F22 is a pipe that is really long. And when you're looking at the end of that pipe, at the end, it's narrow because it's so far away from you. So everything from the beginning of that pipe to the back of that pipe is sort of like just looking through a barrel, basically. The longer that barrel is, the narrower that opening is from your point of view. The more things are in focus from the point of view to where you are to the end of that barrel. Is that a good explanation? (laughs) Okay, I hadn't heard that one before. Um, Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I'm going to run with that. (laughs) And anyone that wants to have a debate, uh, feel free to um, uh, hit up Clay on Twitter. That's all good. Um, My my except, but. Uh, no, that's a fair explanation. Um, I guess my problem is that the physics of it is a, is a little bit harder to get it your is, head around. But, yeah. but there's there's plenty of analogies. There's the toothpaste analogy as well, which I found to be quite odd. But you know, irrespective, Tooth, toothpaste. It's like squishing the toothpaste, huh. and the idea is that the smaller the hole, the more you squish and flatten the toothpaste, and therefore you will get that. The toothpaste is supposed to represent the the depth of field, oh. whereas if you open the aperture and make it wider, then the toothpaste squishes up into a much smaller area, and hence you can only focus on that smaller area in the center. Ah, oh. huh. never heard that one. Yeah, well, there you go. So, um, but I, look, I I still find that confusing. Irrespective, the physics of it is simply the distance that the light travels allows you to focus on um, that area. So, as you open up the aperture, then all of that light will come directly in as opposed to being much tighter and therefore you can only focus on the, the area in the middle mm-hmm. um, based on the distance the light travels and the angles that it takes to get through the lenses mm-hmm. or the stack of lenses, a uh, stack of um, bits of glass inside the lens. Anyway, irrespective, the bigger the hole, the shallower the depth of field you can focus on, um, which is great if you're trying to focus on a subject in the center and create a nice background blur around that subject. And that is, of course, what all of the cool kids call bokeh. <laughs> Funny thing is, you speak to photographers who've been around for a while. Prior to about 20 years ago, I am reliably told, because I was not a photographer back then, and I'm barely a photographer now, <laughs> no one said bokeh back then. Can you attest to if that's true or false? I'm not I'm, sure. I'm not sure. I know, I know bokeh or bokeh, however they say it, 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 it came mm. from Jap- the Japanese, right? Yes. So I'm I'm not sure actually. So in any case, whatever you want to call it, um, that's what that's what that background blurring effect is, and it looks amazing because what it does is it allows you to. And this is one thing I didn't want to talk about was the artistic <laughs> side of it. But artistically speaking, you're trying to draw the the viewer into a specific part of that photo, and if it's a portrait, that's perfect because you're trying to get that one person's face front and center, sharp as attack, and everything else around it is a distraction. So you blur it and magically there it is. Mm-hmm. That's that that's all you see is the person. And that background fades away and and that's the whole point of it. So in any case, 
Controlling your aperture, though, more simplistically beyond focus is simply letting more or less light in through to the sensor. Yep. So therefore, the smaller that pipe is that you were describing, um, the smaller that the smaller that hole is, the less light you have to work with. So yes, you're going to get better focus and better depth of field, um, a focus over that depth of field if you're trying to take a landscape shot or something in a larger field of view. But that's a problem if you don't have enough light. So that works great in the middle of the day, but at nighttime, it's an absolute killer. So it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So therein lies the the dilemma. <laughs> you get nothing for nothing. <laughs> so in the end, um, it's represented as a fraction and the numerator F short for focal length um, over, over that diameter. And the increments that it has are also in strange multiples and the whole idea of basing it on doubling in that area is it's, it's actually... It's all, it's all about the area and the area is divisible. <laughs> you divide the aperture opening by the square root of two because of, you know, uh, because of the, the, the square law and all that other yeah. stuff. And I don't want to go, I don't want to go into the whole area <laughs> equation. If you really want to, you can learn. You could, you that could do a whole is. episode on that. <laughs> I'm not going to do a whole episode on that. I am not doing that to the listeners. Sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the listeners, Clay. I am. Anyhow. Um, right. So, F1.4, for example, um, F1.8, F2, F2.8. This is just the progression that they they go through. F4, F5.6, F8, F11, F16, F22, and F32. Some some lenses don't go to 32, but yeah, that's true. That's true. So F22 is the is, I think is the most common where it stops. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And anything less than F1.4 is a seriously serious um, lens yeah and you're probably going to spend a lot of money yeah you will <laughs> um i think that the lowest lens you can buy is like f 0.9 yep yep yeah which is insane yeah um but never mind and that's what they'll say in the tagline insane bokeh <laughs> yes you would be insane like ins- to pay for that yeah and also insanely unusable for most people <laughs> yeah man exactly that's also true so anyhow, the whole idea is that um, if you double that area or halve that area, then you will either increase or decrease one stop mm-hmm. of light exposure. Yep. So I got not much else to add about aperture other than to say that you know you can get straight edges and curved edges on the um, on those on the little aperture um, blades. You know, blades. Yes. Um, but beyond that, I haven't got much else to say about aperture. Yeah, so Did you have anything else right aperture there? basically uh, aperture basically gives you a plane of focus. And so if you're at 1.4, that plane of focus, depending on the camera, if it's a full frame camera, that plane of focus is narrow. So you could, depending on the focal length, depending on the sensor or film size, you could say... Um, the person's nose to the ear is in focus and everything else falls off gracefully depending on how the aperture blades are. Sometimes they're erratic because of the size of the aperture blade, the shape of the aperture blades, the number of aperture blades. Um, so basically anything in front of this focal plane is blurred. Anything behind it is blurred. So your 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 goal is to try to have, let's say if you're doing a portrait, to have that person's nose hopefully in focus to at least their eye <laughs> because having a blurry nose or blurry eyes 
sort of makes you feel like something is in disharmony, disharmony. And we're talking about artistic, of course, here, but sort of disharmony. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but that's no. Hang on, I I I dis I disagree that that is an artistic thing. I think that having a blurry eyes or blurry nose is extremely off putting because it is because when when you're looking at someone with you know we're cheating with stereostrop stereotomic vision, <laughs> you know with a camera that doesn't have that where yeah. it's simply one lens, having the nose and different aspects of the of a of a person's face out of focus while other ones are in focus is extremely dis, discomforting to look at it just looks very unnatural and i don't think that's artistic i think that's just practical it's like you want to have their whole face to be in focus in focus yeah true yeah yeah we we don't we don't worry so much if the ears are out of focus because guess what i mean unless you're an ear i don't know what do people who are into ears you know, unless you're into that sort of thing, thing. Yeah. I don't know. Isn't it always the a thing? Existence of ears. I mean, I have ears, and they're functional. I don't know. Anyway, I mean, never mind. Yes, okay. People are into weird things. I'm but sure yeah, they so. are. Never mind that. Yeah. So yeah. So for you know, uh, if you're beginning photography new, uh, you know, everyone always wants shallow depth of field. My 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 advice always to people is just put your camera on f five point six. And and just learn how to use your camera at that. Yeah. And then deal with the shallower depth of fields later. Yeah, I think that's good advice. All right. So the time has come for us to explain stops. We can't stop the stops forever. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to... Here's my take on it. And I just um, feel free to correct me where I am wrong if I am wrong. Okay. Um. So the amount of light, and I mean like the actual photons, the actual light that we use to illuminate the sensor from start to finish of our exposure, that is a function of essentially, well, primarily two of the three above, although according to who you read, all three of the above. Mm-hmm. And that is can be referred to or thought of as stops or F stops. Mm-hmm. So, to increase the amount of light exposed, you can either open the aperture up one stop um, or you can leave the aperture alone and keep the shutter open one stop longer or you can increase the ISO by one stop. And each of these things will increase the amount of light exposed by one stop. And by calling it a stop and halving and doubling each of those accordingly, it's an easy way to think about how do I simply get more exposure in terms of more photons illuminating the sensor in a sense. Um, I suppose the problem is the idea of a stop is that I guess you can take one and give from give to the others in roughly equal measures. I think that's the whole idea of a stop. At yes. least that's my take on it anyway. No, no, you're, you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like it's a bit of a it's a bit of light. It's like light accounting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I shall take some out of the aperture bucket and give it to the shutter bucket. And yes. when I'm done with that bucket, I will, um, as a very last resort, take uh, some stops out of my um, out of my ISO bucket because it's the most annoying bucket that leads to too much noise if I'm not careful. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things that I think I also find interesting is that 
it's used in the same parlance when we talk about things like vibration reduction or image stabilization as saying, well, if I use image stabilization, I get another stop. Yeah. And it's like, well, you do, but you don't. It's like you you do because it means you can get, get away with a, with a longer, um, with, a, with more uh, of a shutter speed. Oh, oh sorry. Mm. <laughs> with a longer slower. shutter speed. Yeah. yeah, slower shutter speed. Mm. And that is technically a stop. But it's sort of an indirect thing. It's like, yes, because I've got vibration reduction, that's only really beneficial if I'm shooting handheld. Mm-hmm. I could also then get the same uh, you know, reduction uh, by, by shooting on a tripod or a monopod, probably more a tripod. Right. So, right. yeah. And that, that's what took me a little while to get my head around is that the, the fact that people use that interchangeably. And they say, oh, yeah, because um, uh, I've got image stabilization, I've got another stop out of my lens. And I'm like, did you? Not really out of the lens. But, you know, these, manufa- these manufacturers, they, they, you know, a lot of things are pushed by manufacturers. Now, oh, if sure. you look at Sony uh, or, or any, like Olympus with their, uh, Olympus and Panasonic with their in-body stabilizations, I mean, they'll tell you, you will get five stops because basically you could probably handhold something that someone else would handhold at one one fifty, if I guess. You mm. can probably handhold it at one one eighth or something like that, right? Sure. You know? So, um, but again, it's not a true stop. It is basically as if it's, a, it's you know mm. as if, yeah. but it's not a true stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. So um, another thing I thought of as well just then is um, you could use a wired uh, or wireless remote trigger also. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to, to also further reduce camera shake because just the effect of pushing the button, tapping on the screen, you know, that will also create, you know, uh, vibration. Yeah. And and so all these things, you know, help you to essentially allow your shutter to be open a little bit longer. But if you're trying to capture fast-moving action, I don't think it really makes any damn difference because if it's moving too fast, then <laughs> too bad. Right. I'd, if that's all to say about stops, I didn't have anything else to say, but I, I guess... You know, if to, to, maybe I'll just to play through a scenario. So, if I'm indoors in low light conditions, fast moving action, um, I can increase my aperture stops as far as I can by winding it out to say f two point eight, which is mm-hmm. what I've maxed. So I can go to on my twenty four seventy mil um, zoom lens, um, and then uh, that's my Tamron, and I can increase my shutter stops as far as I can, but. I can so I I have to slow down that shutter speed, but I can't go any lower really than one fifth one five hundredth. Otherwise, I start getting motion blur because people are running too quickly, and that's mm-hmm. that's not good enough. I, I can't go much lower than that. Um, and so then after that, uh, all I can do then is to add more stops by increasing my ISO. I've I'm, I've run out of light. Mm-hmm. I just can't do any more. And. And that's that's the reality, and I guess that's how the whole stop accounting is supposed to sort of work. I guess yeah. that's that's my example, anyway. Yeah, no, no, I I, I think that that's a good example, um, and 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 basically you, there are trade offs. Uh, you know, the higher ISO, uh, more noise. Uh, lower ISO, no light. So you you have to yeah. sort of find the balance in there, figuring out. And and again, also another trade off. If you're at two point eight, uh, that slice of focus is narrower. Um, and then, you know, so everything has a trade-off, um, you know, the shutter speed being too low, you have too much blur, uh, unless you, unless you, and, and the, uh, Nikon D500 has a great 
basically focus point tracking. So on that, uh, once you get that focus point to track, let's say your your basketball player's eye, mm-hmm. your son's eye, mm-hmm. and you get the the like, let's say you're doing a lower than one five hundredth of a second. The panning w- would the panning here would benefit you by having his basically his face and focus having automatic following that you know that's basically what you want to do is uh sort of swim along and have it slightly slower but make sure to to measure on the the eye itself you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah for sure absolutely so i I mean to be perfectly honest i found that indoor sports is for me is the most challenging Mm. photography i've attempted and it's it's like i'm the the you got this is just this is my story really mm. as to why I have what I have, and 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 the reality is that I started out with a D fifty five hundred and going to a real camera because I want to take photos of my kids playing sport and that was fine when they were out in the middle of a field the field was you know even a big field um, with a when I had a fifty five two hundred mil zoom which is pretty good uh, and then I got a longer zoom a fifty five three hundred mil mm. um, but of course. You know, by virtue of the fact that it's not a stupidly expensive zoom, I mean, we're talking about, you know, Australian dollars like those 250 bucks for the 55 200. That's and, the Nikon uh, 300. Right? Yes. Oh. And then the Nikon, there's a Nikon uh, 55 300, was about $350. Um, the, the fact is that that's a pretty decent amount of reach, but because it's not the most expensive lens in the world, the uh, the minimum aperture on that thing is, uh, is f uh, 4.5, mm-hmm. which which is fine when you're outdoors and it's nice and bright. But it's it's useless in, in any other environment. And, oh, well, I don't say useless. It's it's certainly very challenging in other environments. And so then I think, okay, well, I'll get a, I'll get a prime lens. So I got a 35-millimeter prime lens. It can get an f1.8. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful lens, great for street photography or, you know, a lot of different portraits. Um, but the reality is like group portraits in particular mm-hmm. um, to an extent – uh, but the fact is, though, that it doesn't get me close enough to the action. Mm-hmm. And so, I need more reach. And the only way I can get that is with my Tamron, which is a 24mm, 70mm zoom. But it's a constant aperture lens and its minimum is f2.8. Mm-hmm. And so, I will leave that wound down to 70mm and I'll just live with the fact that I'm only ever going to really have the face and upper body in full focus at any one time. But at least I've got that bit of extra reach. Um, but even so, f two point eight is really not as as good as f one point one point eight. And I did some comparative shots last week between the two lenses, between the thirty five mil prime uh, and the uh, the seventy mil at seventy mil on f two point eight, and um, the 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 difference is staggering. That mm-hmm. that is a uh, is a full stop or thereabout of light, and it makes a huge difference. Yeah, and so I think that for indoor sports in order to to pull off the best possible shots that I can. I can't use a flash. The only option that I've got left is to go for a higher zoom prime lens with a lower aperture, mm-hmm. uh, lower stop. That's the only option I've got left at this point because the camera that I've got has got is very fast. It's um it can it takes great photos in low light, but I'll never get past the um you crank the ISO, you're still going to get noise. Um, how how far are you? How far? Like now that you've had the camera for a little bit, how far are you comfortable? What are you comfortable with? What ISO? 
I'm still feeling that out, to be honest. I've only really had it to, for two games. So I'm not, I can't really answer that question yet. But what was the I other had, ones, ISO, that you were comfortable oh, with? The ISO that I that I, I drew the line at rubbish. Um, if it went, if I had an ISO of about twenty five hundred, it started mm. to get too noisy for my for my tastes. Okay. And I had to do, and I had to go to that and above on the fifty five hundred. Um, it just it just couldn't it just couldn't handle it. Mm. It just the, the noise was terrible. This one terrible. Yeah, the D fifty five hundred. I can crank that higher, and the noise is nowhere near as bad. Okay. But it's a much better sensor on the 500 yeah. than on the uh, on the 5500. Yep. yep. So other other photography that I find uh, challenging uh, are night portraits. Um, but you can get away with a flash, and if you've got a flash, then it makes things a lot easier, like a decent flash. Mm-hmm. Um, other examples of what you find challenging photography? There's a few other ones. Yeah, boudoir, wildlife, underwater. Oh, wow. And, yeah, underwater's uh, hard. Didn't think yeah. that. And anything that involves flashes, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the funny thing is that, like, boudoir, I've never actually done boudoir. I've spoken to pe- photographers who have done boudoir. And, yeah. And I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure if, uh, <laughs> if I could do it. It's, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting, uh, it's interesting. Um, mm. but I'm, I'm not, I'm probably not the right guy <laughs> to, uh-huh. to do it. Fair enough. All right. Um, there's one last thing I wanted to quickly cover, mm-hmm. um, that I, I realized that I hadn't covered previously and I probably, you know, got this out of order, but, um, we're talking a lot about lenses towards the end here. And the reality is that having a great camera body is really important, but I think you know, to have to, to meet the needs that you have and, you don't need to go crazy, but just when you do get one, if you're getting one and you're prim- primarily using it for bright scenarios like outdoors, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with a D5500 or something like that. There's nothing wrong with those cameras. They're a good camera and it did, it stood me well for a couple of years. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you invest in lenses, I've, I've heard this, there's a popular, um, I don't know, consideration. And I think it's, I'm beginning to wonder if it's an actual consideration or if it's a false consideration from people that have just been photographers for too long. And this is, do you think ahead? And in air quotes, think ahead. Um, So here's the scenario. I don't want to go and get a full frame camera because I'm predominantly doing sports. I don't want to lug all the bulky weight around. I'm not going to be doing much portrait photography. I'm certainly not selling my photos for, for money. I, it's hard to justify a full-frame camera. So, go for a DX. Great. I'm going to buy DX lenses because they're also cheaper because anything that's FX is automatically more expensive because it's slightly more glass. They generally make it out of better materials. Like there's more oh, steel in them uh, or at least more metal components whereas um, and more rubber mm-hmm. as opposed to the DX lenses which are predominantly made out of plastic and... Um, I mean, what, both of my 55, 255, 300, um, you know, zoom lenses, they both have plastic F-mount um, connection. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like it's not even, I mean, it's, it's, it's hardened plastic. It's, you know, it's, it's good. It's nice plastic, mm-hmm. but it's still plastic. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Whereas the Tamron, which is built like a brick, <laughs> you know, but that, that's, like a, that's like a $750 lens. Mm-hmm. So, but my point is it's an FX lens. So, you can fit that onto an FX. 
So here's the thing. If you're going to go and invest money on a lens, are you should you get just the DX for your DX body or should you pay two to three times the amount of money and get an FX lens? Just someday you might get an FX camera because I was thinking about this and you can put, if you put a DX lens on an FX body, then you're going to get a lot of aberration or you'll just won't you'll just get cropping uh, you will in you will get distortion at the edges and you might not be able to fully illuminate the sensor because the hole is simply not big enough it's designed for it right. like it'll physically fit it'll physically fit on the mount but you know you're not going to get the same performance out of it whereas if you get an FX lens put on a DX it's going to be fine mm-hmm. it's just yeah. overkill yeah it is you know the funny thing is that if you look at every manufacturer out there except for Canon the DX body, the DX lens or the crop lens will work fine on the full frame body. Canon, um, the the, e, the EFS lenses for Canon, I don't think they do because I think the mirror actually would slap the back of that lens. And so, yeah, okay, yeah, but but for the most part, I would say um, if you're a DX shooter, if you can afford the FX bodies, uh, sorry, FX lenses, and you think eventually you'll go FX, that's fine. But, you know, the, the Nikon 35mm uh, DX lens is probably one of the best lenses out there. That 1.8 lens is a phenomenal lens for the price. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was um, the one I've got. So it was uh, 300 bucks Australian, and that was new, and it was uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful lens. I love it. Yeah. I use it any chance I can get. So honestly, um, yeah, I think we should probably draw the line there. I uh, <laughs> um, th- we could go on for a, lo- a long, long, long time, but <laughs> we've got to draw a line at some point. And I-, I guess the the point of the episode for me to try and help listeners is that I feel I felt I I thought I'd researched it, but I was woefully unprepared because I found that there are lots of articles and podcasts that are written by photographers and they have so much assumed knowledge that um you know what i mean and and the other the other problem that i had is that there's a couple of the podcasts that i listen to about photography and they are like here's an episode we're gonna do a whole episode on tripods and i'm like okay you you could do that but i'm really this is just I'm trying to be pragmatic here. And the whole point of it is, is it pragmatic if you are just getting into fo- for photography to obsess over a $1,000 tripod? I would suggest not. Nope. Not and so I have a $30 tripod, all right? It's a crummy piece of junk, but it holds the camera off the ground. And in that sense, it is a very pragmatic choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, hence... Um, in terms of trade-offs, I wanted to try and help uh, present to people what I found in the last two and a half years of what I would call me learning photography. Calling myself a photographer, I would not. Um, I would say I'm definitely an enthusiast. I'm definitely learning more every week um, and I'm enjoying it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, plus taking photos of my kids. So that's that's all, that's always fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the photos I've taken of the kids, they, I'm getting better and better and I'm getting better with my technique and I've got some really fantastic gear and it's great. And I think that I would encourage anyone, um, if you've only ever used a smartphone camera and you've thought to yourself, you know what, I wish I could take photos like 
um, you know, like a professional photographer. But it's like it, that looks really complicated. It's really hard. If you got an, an SL, a mirrorless or you got a, a DSLR and you took some photos um, with, a, with a prime lens and just some portrait photos of your loved ones, you will just leaving it on full automatic, you know, mm-hmm. you will be stunned how good those photos look. And when I first took the, my photo, a few photos like that, it, I blew myself away. I, I, I looked at them, I, I can't believe I just took this photo. It looked so amazing because I was used to using a smartphone that's got yeah. it's it's very flat, it's very samey, yeah. And this looked like a professional photographer had taken it, but you know what? It wasn't a professional photographer. It was me, mm-hmm. and and I am not that, nor do I think I ever will be. But irrespective, so having said that, I, I just be aware, and I guess that's the advice that I'd give listeners is. The, the brands are all, they're all different. Um, start with one that that essentially meets your needs in terms of you don't need super low light photography, probably. You you probably don't, if you want to take lots of portraits and, and so on, don't let people tell you you need to get a full frame camera. I would never start with a full frame. I just wouldn't. I agree. I can't see anyone just, yeah. Um, I would also suggest... Um, starting with a prime lens and and I suppose if you're doing sports, maybe get a, a small zoom lens. Like the 55-200 is perfect to start for a zoom lens for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't go crazy. And if, and if it's not for you, that's okay. You haven't sunk too much money into it. But if it, if, if, if it turns out that you really enjoy it and, it, and, and you can get so much better photos uh, and those are memories that, that you can keep for the rest of your life, and for your children and for their and for, through their lives and it'll be far better to have a photo a nice photo of 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 your loved ones um that otherwise would have just been a speck in the distance um or a washed out smartphone very flat dull looking photo mm-hmm. and you'll have that for the rest of your life you've captured that memory and that's something that it's hard to put a value on yep i, I don't know what do you think no i agree I think I think um, you, you know any of these entry level DSLRs or mirrorless cameras, and you know Sony has a whole bunch of them. Fuji has a whole bunch of them. Um, I, I think it's better to explore. Even even actually, if you were to go for something like a one uh, one inch sensor, that you know Sony and Nikon has cameras that are one inch sensors, um, still going to be better than anything your 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 camera phone, which is basically not even a fingernails size uh, sensor. Um, you know, all of that stuff is computational. Uh, you know, especially if you were to look at things that Google is, is creating, they're all basically computational and uh, photography. And I don't know. I mean, what, you know, look back at your, your iPhone 3G pictures, your iPhone 4 and 4S pictures. They just, they, a lot of them don't stand, you know, the test of time. They just don't. No. But look at your DSLR or or, or any point of shoot camera uh, that it has a sensor that is much bigger than an iPhone. Uh, even the the two third uh, inch sensors, you know, that Fuji and Nokia uh, has, and and Nokia has it in their 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 uh, their uh, some of their phones, which uh, I'm not sure how many of them they still use. But uh, and Fuji had point and shoot cameras. Nikon had 
point and shoot cameras that had that size sensor, they're still they're all going to be better than a point and shoot than a, a camera phone. Absolutely right. Yeah. So I think the only other the only other point I'd like to make is that <clears throat> one of the common refrains is that um, I think the expression is the uh, the best camera is the one that you have with you, <laughs> um, and I think that that's that's universally true. However, um, I whenever I go to kids sports i have my phone on me mm-hmm. so and i don't always have my camera my, my 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 nice camera on me but i usually do because i go there with the intention of using it specifically for that purpose mm-hmm. so i accept the fact that the best camera is the one that you have with you but if you accept the fact also that you always have your smartphone with you because i well i do and i think most people do at this point you always have a camera with you mm-hmm. so getting into photography or not cannot be based on the idea that you will always have a camera on you, so why should I lug around this big, heavy other thing? Um, it should be based on I'm happy to carry around this other thing from time to time because I want to take the best possible photo that I can because that moment in time will pass and I want to make sure that I capture the best possible picture of that moment in time that I can. Mm-hmm. At least that's the way I see it. No, I agree. I agree. A lot of times these uh, phones sort of decide for you exactly what the picture is going to look like you can you can manipulate it by by actually using other other apps, not using the standard. But again, it's not like I mean I don't know how it is on Android. I've never had an Android phone, but on the iPhone, it, it like mm. it, it would be extremely ideal if the iPhone said to me, "You can choose which camera is going to be your main camera." Because mm-hmm. while the iPhone's camera is fine, there are far better cameras out there in the App Store that would maybe make the iPhone sort of a more ideal camera, right? And it's not like, you know, you swipe from the right or uh, and have the camera, you know, when the, from the lock screen. Yeah. But you're, 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 you're swiping into the standard camera. And so I think that, yes, the camera is, any camera is better than no camera. And all of us have smartphones, which means we all have a camera. But if you were to explore and go further and especially go into a system that allows you to wirelessly transfer the pictures you took to your phone, that would also be an ideal uh, situation, more ideal situation, mm-hmm. I should say. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, um, I, I, uh, I think if you want to share photos on the spot, it's hard to beat the low friction of having it in a smartphone mm-hmm. that's got a 3G, 4G, LTE, whatever connection yeah. to, the, to the rest of the world. Um, but the other problem that you've got, the flip side of that is that even if you can wirelessly transmit them on the spot when you're out there taking the photos, um, even if you can do that, you've also got, well, these are, if they're JPEGs, they could be anywhere from 10 to 25 meg in size and that's not exactly Instagram shareable. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I see the argument, but at the same time, I thought, think to myself, well, I guess this is just my process as I'll come home and I'll go through the, um, all my burst photos on the flash flashed um, SD card, and I'll just scrub the ones that I don't want, and I have all my keepers. But the reality is that because um, I tried the whole wireless thing, like it's the Nikon Snapbridge, and it's really not everything it's cracked up to mm-hmm. be. But it's kind of frustrating to be perfectly honest, like setting up the Wi-Fi and all that. It's like Ugh. I know there are better systems out there, but the Nikon's is pretty rubbish. Yeah, that's just my experience. Yeah, anyway. Sony's is not the best either. I think I think all of these camp- these companies are they're not thinking about us, the users, you know? They just want to put a feature on the box and say, there you go. Yeah, wireless transfer, tick. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All righty. 
Alrighty, well, if you want to talk more about this, you can reach me on the Fediverse at chidgy at engineered.space or you can follow engineered underscore net on Twitter to see show-specific announcements. And we've recently started a YouTube channel if you're interested in that. If you're enjoying Pragmatic and you want to support the show, you can via Patreon at patreon.com slash johnchidgy or one word uh, with a special thank you to all of our patrons and an extra special thank you to our silver producers, Carsten Hansen, John Whitlow and Joseph Antonio. And a special thank you to also to our gold producer known only as R. Patron rewards include a named thank you on the website, a named thank you at the end of episodes, access to raw detailed show notes, as well as ad-free, high-quality releases of every episode, with patron audio now also available via individual breaker audio feeds. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, there's lots of great rewards, and beyond that, it's all really appreciated. There's also other ways to help, like leaving a review or rating in iTunes, uh, favoriting this episode in your podcast player app, or sharing the episode or the show with your friends or via social. All of these things help others to discover the show and can make a huge difference too. I'd personally like to thank Backblaze for sponsoring the Engineered Network. Remember to specifically visit this URL, backblaze, or one word, dot com slash pragmatic, to check it out and give it a try. Don't take a chance with your data. Start protecting yourself now. And don't wait for a few months like I did. Start today. I'd also like to thank Solver by Aqualia for sponsoring the Engineered Network once again. You've tried a calculator and a spreadsheet, but if you haven't tried Solver yet, you're missing out on a great app that fits perfectly with the way your brain actually thinks. Solver for iOS is available through the App Store, and the newly updated Solver 3 for Mac is available from the Solver.app website. If you use the URL in the show notes, and it helps out the show, so please use that URL in the show notes to learn more about this helpful little app. And if you visit that URL before the 30th of June 2019, you'll get 33% off. So act now, and don't wait. Pragmatic is part of the Engineer Network, and you can find it at engineer.network. And you can follow me on the Fediverse at chidgy at engineer.space or the network on Twitter at engineer underscore net. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with Clay, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, mate? Uh, CW Daily everywhere. So, you know, Instagram, Twitter. If it's a social network, I'm probably there under C-W-D-A-L-Y. And uh, if anyone's looking for um, some of your photography, what's the what's the URL for them to have a look at some of your photos? Uh, CWDaily.com. Um, or, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you can go look at Instagram. But yeah, cwdaily.com. Just look on there and look at the the portfolio or sometimes in my blogs. All right, awesome. Uh, and of course, um, uh, people that follow me will know that um, uh, Clay is one of my uh, co-hosts from uh, Bubble Sort as well, which is another podcast that we do with Vic, Vic Hudson. Uh, and Clay also has a another podcast that he does specifically about photography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Through My Lens with Clay Daly. And uh, it's uh, sometimes touchy-feely. And uh, yeah, go, go check it out. Through My Lens with Clay Daly. Everywhere that podcasts are available. Mm-hmm. There you go. Nice. All right, fantastic. All right, well, thanks for that. And uh, a special thank you again to our patrons and a big thank you to uh, everyone for listening. And uh, as always, uh, thanks for coming on, Clay. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Anytime, mate. Anytime. Anytime.